he looked fucking massive as Bane. I don't know how he did it, but he looked like a huge man. Anabolic steroids, my boy. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to episode 15 of the Double Reel Film Podcast. This is the second reel of our monthly magazine-style podcast for film nerds. Hopefully you have caught up with the first reel, had a brief intermission, and refueled ready to take on this mighty second instalment of Nerdy Film Chat. If you haven't caught the first reel yet, please do go back to your app and download and listen to it so you're up to date with all the features we've covered already this month. These include our roundup of news and spotlight on some of the films we watched this month, our classic and recommended feature on The Constant Gardener, our hidden gem, The Illusionist, the one that got away about Bruce Lee's The Game of Death, and our remake, Hate Watch, of The Jackal. Now in Reel 2, we bring you our big conversation, where we tackle a weighty topic and give it a fuller, i.e. longer, discussion. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast if you fancy a bit of time inversion and want to go back over our tenant discussion a second time. Joining me as always is my co-host, James Adamson. Welcome, James. Thank you very much for having me. Um, I'm excited for this big conversation and the wee extra snippet we've got on turn it today so let's let's do it great so what we've decided to do for this month is to mark the upcoming release of the new bond film uh no time to die with a discussion of what the future may hold for 007 and the world's oldest living film franchise um it's it's a it's a it's a kind of a unique uh film series in that it's been going since 1962 um and even though it's actually been updated a number of times, there's still this, you know, classic idea of a Bond film that has survived, you know, many decades and uh, has become sort of associated. It's almost, it's almost like the the flagship British film, but also, you know, popular around the world. And with this latest film coming out and also having been delayed a bit, and, and some of the recent films have all uh, taken a, a bit longer to make, and this one, you know, had its release um, delayed by COVID, um, it means now that Daniel Craig's been in in the Bond uh, role for fifteen years. He's likely to change, um, and whenever they change Bond, they usually have a review of the whole the whole franchise. What sort of films should we be from now on? So it's a bit of a crossroads now, and I thought it would be interesting for us to just have a look at uh, you know what the future holds. Um, but first, James, what's your um, what's your sort of relationship with the Bond films been? I mean, uh, you know, growing up, you know, first one you saw, um, how, how you know what what Bond sort of means to you. To be honest, um, I've seen From Russia with Love, and then nothing, 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 and then Golden Eye, <clears throat> and then Tomorrow Never Dies. I think I've seen all the Pierce Brosnan ones, but only Golden Eye is any only the only one worth talking about. And then I've seen all the Daniel Craig ones, so I don't have this affinity that the entire so, country. So you, you missed the you missed the whole Roger Moore bit, yeah, basically. Um, That's I interesting we, because we'll, not, we'll not get the into Roger the we'll get into the background of the of the of, of Bond a little bit. And the interesting thing is that the the Roger Moore Bonds cast this huge shadow over over the franchise for decades. Um, he he's been Bond for just about the longest. I think he's actually been overtaken by uh, Daniel Craig, although Daniel Craig hasn't done as many films. And, you know, people still now, you know, will say, I wish it was more like the Roger Moore ones, even now, decades later. So it's it's interesting that, you you know, you, because they came out so long ago, haven't seen any of the Roger Moore ones. And and Daniel Craig is very much Bond for you. That's interesting. I mean, for me, 
Yeah, go ahead, Mike. Sorry, I think the <clears throat> the thing that put me off them is uh, I read Roger Moore's comments about the Bond franchise, and he was like, he was wasn't he not, was he not older than Sean Connery? And he was just saying, you know, these yeah. these women that I was meant to be seducing and stuff like that were young enough to be my granddaughter or something like that. And I just wasn't comfortable with it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, hope I I don't know the comments themselves. I know he. I know he got to the point where he'd been doing them for so long that he was embarrassed to doing a role, and and I I thought the comments that he made like that were 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 intended that way. I mean that's why he jacked it in. Um, I mean basically he he was actually famous around about the same time Sean Connery was. Although Sean Connery took on Doctor No in nineteen sixty two and became hugely successful, Roger Moore was on the telly as the Saint. And that was a really big show. Roger Moore was famous. And people have been talking about, oh, maybe Roger Moore should play James Bond, um, you know, next or whatever. Um, and when he finally got it, yeah, he's a couple of years older than um, uh, than Sean Connery. And in the in the 70s Bonds, he's he's 40, right? Or he's 40, he's 45, but he looks quite youthful. Right, and okay. you know, and the, the, the women playing the Bond girls at 25, 30. And it's kind of, you know, look, he's, he's older, but that's not that out of the ordinary. He, but the thing is, the films are hugely successful. He's pretty popular as Bond, and 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 the Bond franchise tends to stick with a guy playing James Bond for quite a while, which we will go into. And he, um, so he just carries on doing it. And then he's doing For Your Eyes Only in 1981, and he's 53 at that point. Right, and it's just he's just you know he's he's getting on a bit, and then he does he does two more, and when he does A View to a Kill in 1985, he's 57 years old. Right, I didn't realize. It, they, I didn't realize it went on for that long. Yeah, yeah, and they're casting. They're casting the Bond girls as normal, and the actress playing the Bond girl in in A View to a Kill is twenty five or twenty four. Right, and he's yeah. Um, and he, there's a guy, or there's a there's a member of the crew on set whose only job is to spray some hair thickener onto Roger Moore's head between takes, so that his hair still looks thick enough. The whole thing is getting ridiculous, and he should have jacked it in. But you know, the, the Bond people are really loyal to him, and he was he was enjoying playing James Bond. You know, he was enjoying walking around in a suit, having a vodka martini, and you know, it's the biggest thing he'd ever done, right? He didn't, you know. But then, then he met the Bond girl's mother on set, and she was younger than him. Right. And he just went, "Oh, that's enough," and he jacked it in. And even, even then, when he was 50, even then when he was fifty-seven, and everyone was saying, "Come on, that's a bit ridiculous." It still it still took Roger Moore to say. Look, this is ridiculous. I can't do this anymore, and he and he kind of quit. Um, you know, uh, which I mean, we'll, we'll, you know, again, we'll get we'll get into because there's a couple of um, features of the Bond franchise, and one of them is kind of extreme loyalty to the, the 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 main Bond, or wanting to stick with the with the guy who's Bond no matter what. So yeah, so my relationship with with Bond is obviously different to yours. I think it was a it was a British institution by the time I was kind of becoming aware of films. You know. In the early '80s, you'd get a Bond film on the on on a bank holiday Monday, right? And if you were lucky, you got to stay up to watch it. And it was always the Roger Moore ones. It was always Live and Let Die, The Man with the Gold Gun, you know, The Spy Loved Me. And I enjoyed. I have to say, I enjoyed the the trappings of Bond. You know, the speedboat chases. The um, you know, it's obviously very glamorous, and he goes all all around the world and. There's lots of gadgets, you know. In one of the Roger Moore ones, there's a car that goes underwater. You know, it turns into a little mini submarine, um, and you know the the bad guy has a shark tank. You know that that, that someone gets, you know, the one of his his henchmen gets dropped into, and it was all fun and and, and over the top. But I wasn't wasn't that struck on Roger Moore because it was like, God, this guy's old. 
This guy yeah. is the, this guy is my granddad's age, and he's running around, you know, trying to be the action guy. And, and you know, my granddad was a lovely fellow. You met him, um, and he was very sprightly. But I don't think I don't think he would have been up for anything Roger Moore was doing in the Bond films at yeah. that age, right? Um, so, um, I sort of got into Bond, particularly when Timothy Dalton took over, because they suddenly had a uh, you know a considerably younger guy. Uh, and tried to update the bonds, and it was more modern, and it was more action packed. And he went, he really went for it. And Timothy Dalton had, had, was more. It, it sounds silly because the Bond films are not meant to be taken all that seriously, but the person playing Bond has to take it seriously. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And Timothy Dalton, you know, gave it a bit more room, and he was kind of, you know, fighting the people like he meant it, and running around like he meant it. And I went, oh yeah, this is good. And similar to you, then GoldenEye came out. Um, Timothy Dalton, you know, probably going to why Timothy Dalton didn't last long. GoldenEye came out, and that was that was a genuinely good action film, as well as being a Bond film. And I thought, well, here we go. Um, so from there on, I was a you know, I was going to try and trying to go and see every new Bond film when it came out of the cinema and all that sort of thing. And I've been a Bond fan on that basis. Um, uh, and I mean, I've got all of them on DVD or Blu-ray. I've seen them all, and. You know, um, so I mean, I, I am a, I am a big fan of the Bond fr- franchise. Well, what I would say is, it's not my favourite spy franchise. My favourite spy franchise is Mission Impossible. Um, because that's you know, I know, I know Tom Cruise isn't for everyone, but I think those films are absolutely stunning. And if and if, and if you're going to do if you're going to do the way I see it, if you're going to do spy films as over the top action films, then those are proper over the top action films. You know? Yeah. To be honest, I know they're meant to be spy films, but I feel like James Bond as a franchise is more traditionally espionage. You know the the suits and you know going into a, a so, yeah, an so enemy country. Yeah. But Mission Impossible to me is just what's Tom Cruise doing this year? Then you know it's uh, yeah uh, yeah. I mean it's yeah. To be honest, it's like you you enjoy it, and although you find the story very exciting, you do find yourself during the film go fucking hell, look how fast Tom Cruise can run. Do you know what I mean? He's fucking hell, Tom Cruise is on the side of a building, and it's. He's, you know, J- James Bond is James Bond, whereas Mission Impossible is Tom Cruise, if you see what I mean. So you just, you enjoy it for the, you know, every every film he comes, you know, tries to top the last one. You know, I'm not going to since he joined the Church of Scientology, his films have got a lot better. Like, his films were always good. <laughs> no, you know what I mean? Like, everyone yeah. loves a bit of Top Gun, and everyone likes the first Mission Impossibles, but did he not join... I don't um, know when he joined the Church of Scientology, but I think when he when he became most prominent in the Church of Scientology was probably in the early two thousands. How when he started fucking the, good was Mission Mission Impossible Three? How fucking was good great. was that one? That was great. I mean, I know we're getting off the topic here, but Mission Impossible. The, the thing about Mission Impossible is they have they've since they've come out, there have been more good Mission Impossible films than good Bond films. And they've only really one done one kind of duff Mission two, Impossible film, it? which was two, which wasn't very good. Big, which and all the others have been tremendous. Who's the bad guy in that? Dougray Scott. Is that his Dougray name? Scott. I mean, do you know? Did you know he was going to be Wolverine? See, I can see it, but Hugh Jackman is just a lot better. Um, Hugh Jackman yeah. just made that his role. Um, I mean, I think I think in the original X Men, uh, Wolverine isn't meant to be all that tall, so I think that's why they went with someone Dougray Scott's size. But I can't imagine anyone other than Hugh Jackman playing him. Now. How how tall is Dougray Scott? He's kind of average height. He's not tiny, but the whole idea of Wolverine, exactly. he was meant to be kind of not hugely tall, but really broad and kind of powerful. So yeah, I mean, in, in Mission Impossible Two, it's um, the whole the whole point is that Tom Cruise could could pass himself off as Dougray Scott, which suggests that Dougray Scott's not all that tall either, right? 
Okay, yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, back to Mission Impossible has only got one bad film, but there's how many Mission Impossibles are there? There's one, two, there's been three, seven Ghost Protocol, Rogue Nation, and Fallout. Fallout, and then this one it's coming seven. out soon is meant to be seven. Wait, have I? No, hang on. No, you're right. Sorry. Properly? I don't know. We're gonna... One, two, three. I've been thinking about Mission Impossible no, 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 so much. No, no, Maybe it, it, it goes one, two, three, and then the one where he climbs the Burj Khalifa is Ghost Protocol, mm-hmm. and then. The one after then Rogue Nation is the one where you first get Rebecca Ferguson and Fallout is with Henry Cavill. Oh, I, Sorry, it's I'm six. A... I, I keep thinking it's seven because like they're filming seven at the moment. That's my mistake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I suppose six hits and one miss is a lot better than a lot of misses in the Bond franchise. Yeah, I mean, so we'll, we'll get into sort of, you know, Bond, you know, in that sense, because it is interesting that, that there's, I think one of the reasons why we're talking about Bond as much as we are is because we've got this great affection for it. It is this British institution. He wears these amazing suits. He drives an Aston Martin. He drinks a vodka martini shaken, not stirred. And at times, that has perhaps dragged the the franchise through a couple of films that haven't been very good. Yeah. And, every, and and then when you then when you get a good one, um, everyone's like, "Oh yeah, Bond's back! It's great!" You know. So that's why there's this you know there's this huge um, you know sort of interest in the Bond films. Even I mean, it's, it's, it's so go ahead, mate. Even with like when they have a good one, like Daniel Craig's probably that's probably going to be quite controversial. Daniel Craig's probably my favorite Bond. Um, I don't think it's that controversial. He's a lot of people's favorite Bond. Um, I think he's very good because the films have generally be generally been to a very well. Two of them have been wait no, what am I thinking of? Yeah, two of them have been very good, and the other two have been a bit meh. But mm-hmm. um, even the ones that have been a bit meh, he's been he's always been good. Yeah, I mean, and there's usually some good proper blowing up action sequences yeah, I mean, or if you it? go the, back through the the something of Boris wasn't wasn't very good but you can you can kind of forgive that because um it was it's it's problem was is that it it, it 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 they had to stop writing the script about a third of the way through production and they were just making it up as they went along so while there was some tremendous action and stunts the story doesn't make a lot of sense um yeah. the, the worst thing about quantum of solace is the villain is is shite what, um, wee French frog looking yeah, motherfucker. Yeah. yeah, he's just like yeah. That's um, he's not you know he's not a very good. But he doesn't exude power the way a Bond villain is supposed yeah, to. Yeah, I think uh, Le Chiffre is probably my favourite one, and then Javier Bardem. Yeah, yeah. It's I mean, and then that's the thing that there's been some really good matchups in 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 the in the Bond you know franchise, and so when it's good, it's everyone loves it, and that's that's why we're talking about it. When 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 he hits form with someone like Skyfall or the original you know Casino Royale, which is still a, a tremendous film. Um, yeah. You really do kind of go, well, n- you know, no one else is James Bond. Um, so just quickly. We, sorry, carry on, carry on. So in terms of calling it the longest sort of franchise, I thought I'd sort of try and put it in perspective of the franchises generally. It, it's, it's str- there's, there's sometimes it's a bit arguable whether Bond is the oldest franchise because Godzilla has been around longer, but Godzilla had a couple of f- periods where the franchise is on a long hiatus, like 10 or 15 years. Whereas the Bond films have been continuous since 1962, which is why I called it the oldest living franchise because it, it's never been, you know, they've never had a break. But in, in terms of the franchises, in terms of you know what Bond is competing with, you know, when we say about franchise nowadays, because there was no such thing as a franchise when the first Bond films were coming out. It was just the next Bond film, you know what I mean? Yeah, and and there was no one else doing that, right? So by the time they're on Diamonds Are Forever and then and then getting Roger Moore into to take over as Bond, they've done seven or eight films and they're all Bond films. There was no one else doing that, whereas now it's a pretty crowded market. They've got Mission Impossible, which we talked about. You've got the Marvel franchise, which is absolutely massive. You've got DC. Star um, Wars. And then you've had Harry Potter come and go. You've had Lord of the Rings come and go. The Lord of the Rings count, even though it's three films? 
Yeah, well, I, because I, yeah, I think I think it needs to I be mean, like a, a late. If, if, yeah, if I suppose, yeah, I know the Lord of the Rings is a weird one because they then had the Hobbit, which is supposedly in the same universe, and now they're trying to bring it back as a, a series. I don't think it counts as much as a franchise. I'm sure they also had Pirates of the they also had Pirates of the Caribbean, which, which is somehow not died yet. Oh God knows, and then Transformers. Um, <laughs> you're not. It's only 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 been one good one, and and then obviously there's been the Jurassic Park stroke Jurassic World franchise, which has carried on a bit. Um, so so in a sense, I mean, I kind of want to put a wee shout out to uh, Coronation Street as the longest running franchise ever. <laughs> yeah, if we were doing telly, you'd ha- you'd have to you'd have to mention that. Or, or the Archers. Look how long the Archers have been going on. If you're going to stretch it to radio. Um, oh, so sorry, quick side note: sorry, I'm really excited for that Lord of the Rings TV franchise because you know I'm a sucker for a TV show. And I read an article about one of the stuntmen the other day, and he said that the stunts in this TV show are really fucking dangerous. <laughs> He basically just said, yeah, that, that we shouldn't be doing these stunts. They're really, 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 really bad. <laughs> who was it? It was, so on a, who was it was on a TV show. I'll tell you who it was. It was it was Felicity Jones. She was on the telly for some film she was promoting, and she was talking about that aeronauts film she did, you know, about the hot air balloon. Yeah. And they said how they actually had to go up in a hot air balloon for real, and some of the bits where they're hanging off the side of a hot air balloon, they are literally thousands of feet up while they're doing this. And she's strapped to a harness, getting bounced off the side of, her, of of the balloon, and I think she broke a rib. And she said in the interview, a thought went through her head, this is Tom Cruise's fault. <laughs> and what she meant was is that since, since Tom Cruise started hanging off oh, the side of the building for real, everyone, all the stunts have to be that much more realistic and, and exciting and kind of bish-bash-bosh, you know? Thank fuck for Scientology, though, because if we didn't have that, you wouldn't be fucking hanging off the side of planes. That's right, yeah. Love you, Battlefield so- Earth. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so right, we digress anyway, again. So back, the back ADHD to, is strong in this one. <laughs> <laughs> so back to the franchises. On the one hand, Bond ha- has a certain risk of being superseded because Mission Impossible is kind of you know machine tool to be the ultimate kind of modern franchise, and it's got no previous baggage. Like you know, uh, Bond has to drink a, a, sh- a vodka martini shaken, not stirred. No one drinks those nowadays. Um, uh, and you know, Marvel is, is, is bigger. Marvel's overshadowing everyone else. And there's the Fast and the Furious, which is a very, you know, popular franchise as well. Family. Have you seen, have you seen seen those memes? Uh, I've seen a few of them. Have you seen uh, the the best ones? The, uh, where he's, he's at the gates of uh, Mordor, the black gates. No, right. And he goes for family. And instead of Aragorn on its horse, it's just him driving his Dodge Charger towards (laughs) the Orc army. (laughs) I'm not ruling that out of Fast and Furious 10 as it is a scene. Um, so, so there are some big franchises out there where, where you sort of think Bond has to freshen it up. However, on the, on the other side, we have looked at some of these other franchises. Harry Potter, you know, Star Wars is wobbling and, and you know, Pirates of the Caribbean is still hanging on but isn't there. So a lot of, a lot of franchises have fallen by the wayside um, and Bond is still there. So on the one hand, you know, Bond is, um, you know, has a much more competitive field to be a franchise in than it ever used to but it's still hanging in there isn't it um yeah. so that, i mean that that's why you know there's there's no question is there of you know along comes you know no time to die daniel craig we all i certainly hope the He's film is good i'd, li- I'd like to see him sign off in yeah. style um but there's no question of oh and then they'll stop the bond franchise after this they'll they will they will carry on they definitely definitely carry on yeah um so so the, the question really is what are the um you know what? What are they got to do? So they've they've got to. I think what they've got to do is they've got to cast a new James Bond, and they've also got to decide what um, uh, uh, new um, 
what the films are going to be like from now on. Um, because, and, and they've done this before. I mean, they, they did it when, uh, when Daniel Craig took over as Bond. You know, uh, Pierce Brosnan was, was, was done and dusted. They're looking for a new Bond. And there was a lot of talk that it was going to be Clive Owen. And everyone looked at Clive Owen. Yeah, I could see that. Definitely, I could see that. But um, what happened was the, uh, the Bourne identity came out, followed by the Bourne supremacy. And it changed the face of, of modern kind of spy action films. Yeah, and, and couple that the, with Mission Impossible also being really yeah. good. So, yeah, sorry, carry on. Absolutely. And so there was a question of that, that we've got to keep up with the times. And I think, while I think Clive Owen would have been terrific, the Bond people went, if we just go straight for the whole suave, dinner-jacketed, you know, smooth kind of approach, we're going to get left behind. So they went for Daniel Craig because he brings that hard edge to things, which is very consistent with with the character of, uh, of Bond from the book. So it, it wasn't like a massive change. But they've updated and rebooted Bond, you know, several times for that. They they changed the whole style of the films and the whole kind of style of it for um, for Daniel Craig. When when Pierce Brosnan came along, they they realised they had to keep up with kind of the modern kind of action, you know, standards of, of the nineties, and, and they did that. When Timothy Dalton came in, he he had to give it a shot in the arm. And when and when Roger Moore took over, they said we've got to update this for the seventies because if you you watch from Rush with Love, you watch any of the other. Um, uh, uh, Sean Connery Bond films, they are very, very 60s. You can see how 60s they are. And when when Roger Moore took over, he said, right, we're going to have to update Bond for the 70s. And Roger Moore's first Bond film um, was influenced by black exploitation because Shaft and all these other films had come out. Um, and then uh, when they did the, the next Bond film, it was uh, it was over set over in, in East Asia and had lots of martial arts because Bruce Lee had done Enter the Dragon. And, and so on and so on. So they've they've tr- always tried to keep up with the times every time they've rebooted it, and they're going to have to do that again. So th- there's two big things: is who's going to be who's going to be Bond, and what kind of Bond film are they going to make? You know? Yeah, um, it, you can see there's definitely been a shift. It's not as much as the whole. It's it's not a classic espionage kind of. You know, he's wearing a suit and he goes to the bar franchise. Like you said, the Bourne identity completely changed it. But to, do you want to move on to where we think it's going now? Like, Yeah, let's do yeah. that. So I've had this discussion with my best mate Rory and his mum, you know, loads of times about the Bond franchise because obviously there's been a big push for someone like Idris Elba to take the role as James Bond and also, um, what's his face? There's been a bit of a, since Bridgerton came out, that guy who I can't remember the name of, is it Rennie Jean Page, something like that? Something like that, yeah. We were having a discussion now. To me, I just want to see someone play a good James Bond. I think if Tom Hardy wasn't five foot nine, he would be my ideal choice. Um but they're in the camp of and they're not they aren't saying this from a bigoted racist point of view, but James Bond has always been a you know, a white character and they don't want it to be a tokenism where they try and just give a prominent role to a black person for the sake of it, if you know what I mean. Yeah. What they did agree with was that I what I think we were discussing about the new one, how the, the kind of mantle of 007 has been given to, I think, a young black actress character. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were like, yeah, that's fine. Because 007 hasn't... Re- James Bond and 007 haven't really been in the title of a film yeah. since... God, no, well, I can't ever. remember. Well, ever. No, they, they've, they've never been. You see, that, that's interesting. 
So two anyway, things. I mean, we, sorry, yeah. sorry, so just kind of finish that point. So they were like, well, if you, because I think that's what's happening in this one. James Bond, Daniel Craig's James Bond is now washed up and absolutely battered and bruised. And obviously, uh, MI6 still keeps going with its uh, 00 program. So 007 mm-hmm. has been given to a young black. Uh, and they're like, yeah, that's fine because you can have that character in the film. And then if you have a spin off of 007 where it's, you know, a film about her, fine, but don't make that character James Bond. Um, because it just, we, you want the film to cast the best person. Now, it doesn't bother me as much. You know, it's, at the end of the day, it's a film. It's not the end of the world. My life will not be changed whether James Bond is white or black. But I can understand why people have, you know, um, you know, kind of passionate feelings about a franchise that has been around since, like you say, 1962. And, you know, you, you want it to be consistent with the way the character was written and has always been described. Um so I think what's going to happen is they'll cast a new James Bond, but I think we'll see it from a totally different angle. Maybe you will be seeing older James Bonds, like James Bond is now out of the game, or he's now he's you know maybe the next James Bond film is him completely underground, and he's you know he's a bitter old man kind of thing and stuff like that. And but you still have you know the 007 films as well, where you can spin off because they've given themselves the perfect opportunity to do that. Um, Such interesting idea, yeah. Because obviously you want, because they were kind of trying, they made the argument that, you know, why don't they just write more films with black spies in it? And I said, yeah, I completely agree. But the problem is nobody watches those films because it's, it's, a it's, new, no, it's nothing's it, as big a name as James Bond. Trying right? to start a new franchise is a big fucking pain in the balls and you don't always get it right. For example, M. Night Shyamalan do, 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 did really well with that um, split film. James yeah, yeah, it's brilliant. interesting. He and sort he, of pulled he pulled a lot of stuff back together with that, and, and, and he did really well with it. And then the second film, Glass, was okay, but it wasn't as good as it wasn't as good as Split. It was a bit far fetched because he, he, he was trying he was trying to create a universe out of all of yeah. his, um, so, his characters, and that's how it? hard it is. You can start as strongly as M Night Shyamalan did with Split and still be absolutely fucked because you're um, yeah. trying to trying to carry that thing on. So I can understand why people it's seen as piggybacking, but if you start a kind of spin-off series um, for the 007 franchise as opposed to the James Bond franchise, then you're you're off to a good start because people also will watch it and then it can give young black actresses and young black actors and young people of colour or just any any young actor. It's hard for any young actor to break into the, you know, break break into the into the film business these days. So I do I do agree with I do understand that, you know, write write those films and, you know, People, you know, you're giving those opportunities, but unfortunately, Hollywood is a money-based business. So, you know, people are going to be piggybacking yeah. other franchises to try and make, you know, money from them. So, I think what we'll see is that we'll probably see a kind of, well, maybe I don't know if we will because I know who makes these films again. Is it Eon? Yeah, I mean, they, they only make these films, don't they? They only, yeah. they only make these films. So, I don't know if they'll start making 007 films and carrying on with the James Bond films. But that's what I'd like to see because um, maybe I kind of kind of delving into more of the universe of MI6 and how the spy program works, but also have that, you know, a new direction for the James Bond character that everyone loves as well. Um, potentially, hopefully, fingers crossed. Yeah, so that's really interesting. I mean, if you if you look at how it compares to other other franchises, the you can see why Bourne casts such a shadow over the Bond films, because when when uh, when Jason Bourne, you know, in the, in the guise of Matt Damon came out as well as being absolutely lethal in all the action sequences, which is which is just a, a requirement now. You could you could get by with, um, uh, you know, Roger Moore looking a bit unconvincing with his karate chops back in the seventies, but you can't do that now. He's got to be look like he's some use in a fight, and 
Jason Bourne is this fairly lonely character. He's out on his own. He's breaking all the rules because he has to. And and James Bond is that kind of lone wolf kind of maverick figure is, is, is a big part of that. But you look at all the other franchises now and they're, they're, they're a bit more ensemble, aren't they? Even yeah. even Mission Impossible, which which revolves around Tom Cruise, he's um, ever since number three, he's kind of expanded it so there's a bit of a team around him. You know, um, uh, he's got um, he had Jeremy Renner for a bit. He may rejoin now that he's not so busy with the Avengers films. He had Paula Patton in for a while, and Rebecca Ferguson has joined, which gave an opportunity for there to be a um, uh, you know, a lively and exciting female spy character, right? And everyone went, oh, that's uh, good. She's really good. Look at her riding around on a motorbike shooting things. This is terrific. Um, and and I think Tom Cruise was quite astute in that, in that he said, well, let's let's expand this because you can have your comedy character who's still quite useful in Simon Pegg and, and, and all of these other things going on. And it means you can have all sorts of, you know, and then the, the, the final scene at the fallout, I don't want any spoilers, but there was – there was a lot going on with different characters doing different things. And that made it really, you know, that made it, you know, doubly exciting. Yeah. So without being too messy, it was. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yes, exactly. They, they, they balanced it all very well. Um, so you can see what exactly what you're saying about if they are going to have a, a franchise where they expand the, the, the double O, you know, cause there's meant to be more <clears throat> double O agents, right. They only ever get referred to. Usually they turn up and get killed. Right. Or, 003 is busy in, in Antigua, so you have to do this one Bond or whatever, right? And that's all. And then yeah. it's all about Bond is typically what these films are. So they have started to lean in that direction in the Bond films where they've made Money Penny a bit more more active than just kind of sitting back in, in the office. And even M gets involved and, and Q is, you know, not just handing out the gadgets. In, in the last one, he was actually getting actively involved in the action. So maybe they'll, they'll try and do some of that. The, the problem for Bond is that they've, you know, that those are kind of very old established characters that they're just trying to repurpose into active members of the team. And all the rumors we've heard about the latest Bond films, they've introduced this other double O character and that that's how to expand it. Right. So they could definitely do that by giving, um, you know, Bond a, a, a bigger team, which, you know, and, and those characters can have then have their own spin off. I could, I could definitely see that happening. I think people are going to want their flagship Bond film, right? Yeah. They're going to want, Every, you know, eight, four, five years. Yeah. They're going to want their main Bond film. But, you know, it's typical marketing. If people like your product, give them more of it, right? Yeah. So that's why you have spin-offs. That's why you have spin-offs of TV shows. There's the more than one, there was more than one, you know, CSI, more than one of this, more than one of that. So if they if they do do that, you can definitely see how they would go, yeah, you could spin this off. And if people like this this other double O character, the, 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 the female black character, she can be part of the... Um, the Bond franchise, which uh, exactly as you describe, it's hard to start a new one, but you can piggyback on the back of an existing one and do something fresh with it. So I could definitely see that happening. Um, in terms of in terms of Bond, you, one thing that you're absolutely right is there sh- there should be absolutely no tokenism in the casting of the next Bond film. And, and yeah, the main yeah. reason for the main reason for that, in in, in my view, is you know what the reaction will be, right? You don't want to make a rod for the next James Bond's back by having people say, oh, it's it's only, you know, it's only tokenism that he got the role, right? Which is why if, you know, if yeah, Idris Elba was 10, if, if Idris Elba was like 10 years younger, right, you could go, oh, well, look, look how good Idris Elba is. He's done action films. He's a big name. They're, they're, well, they're, whoever, whoever takes on the Bond film has to have some momentum behind him so that people go, yeah, I could see that. Because it is hard; it's, it's hard to be the next Bond. A lot of people looked at Timothy Dalton and went, "Oh, I don't like this. I prefer Roger Moore. He used to smile and drink his cocktail. Do you know what I mean?" And yeah. Timothy Dalton was trying to turn it into a more more serious film. 
there was a campaign to remove Daniel Craig as Bond before he'd even done a film because he, was because he had blonde hair. So it is it is tough. People, it's it's hard for people to accept some, some change. So whoever they pick as James Bond, I think a black guy could play James Bond, no problem, as we discussed in the previous episode, but whoever they pick, there has to be someone where people immediately find him a convincing yeah, I could see him doing that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think so. If they market him, they push him. It's, it, it, I mean, and that's why. I mean, I, I personally think Tom Hardy is is too old. Although I do accept what you just said about do you do you reshape Bond as an older character, and then you could do that. Well, I think that's because, what, sorry. So even even my pal Rory conceded that while he thinks you know they shouldn't make it tokenistic and you know just keep it a white character but expand the universe, absolutely fine. He did concede that Idris Elba would make an excellent James Bond, and I think if you took that if you took the franchise in a different direction where say James Bond has had to stop being a spy because he was forced out or he was injured or he lost loved ones or whatever. And that's the kind of the angle you take from it. And he, I reckon it will play it excellently in terms of like a kind of bitter old man who mm-hmm. has kind of lost his way. And he's now kind of, he's now he's an angry, you know, and maybe, he's, maybe he's not, maybe James Bond isn't the protagonist anymore. And now he's just kind of off the rails and they're trying to kind of rein in, um, Idris Elba and kind of go back to it because I feel like Idris Elba's best performances were as Luther. Yeah. So, yeah. And I'm not and saying they, just they, a copy and, of Luther, but, you know, kind of tap into that kind of raw, energetic power that Idris Elba brings to the screen and take it that way to the Bond franchise as opposed to getting Idris Elba to have a fucking a, a knee replacement after every single film. That's right. I mean, I mean, this is the thing. If they're, if they're going to carry on, carry on doing James Bond films where James Bond is the same character as before. Yeah, it's boring. Um, it's, it's, but, and, but it will also be tough on Idris Elba because he's 49. Yeah, and and forty nine is when you should be thinking about doing your last Bond film, not your first Bond film. Yeah, um, the same with Tom I, Hardy. I think although, although Tom Hardy is quite small, um, even though we've seen him look absolutely enormous to play, he big, manages to make himself re- look really big on he's film. A, he's he? a presence. He's a big. Force yeah, yeah, yeah. Screen, he's, um, he's like five foot nine, which is too short to play James Bond, but he doesn't look short. He looked fucking massive as Bane. I don't know how he did it, but he looked like a huge man. Anabolic steroids, my boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's the thing. I mean, if you're gonna talk about if you're gonna do a traditional bond the traditional way, I think they've got to cast a young man. Uh, uh all the young male uh, actors don't really seem no, well, this is I mean and th- th- this is the thing, this is what this is this is what the this is I think the biggest challenge for 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 the Bond films. See whoever whoever they cast as Bond, here's the thing. If they take it in a new direction, if they try and do do something new with it, if you try and do too many new things, I think you, you might you might lose your audience. You might struggle. So having Idris Elba play that sort of embittered character who's gone rogue, that still works because Bond has always been a bit rogue. Yeah. yeah. So if you do that, you you, you would if if you were going to do Idris Elba, it's an older Bond doing whatever he's doing. You would you would have to do it, and 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 it'd be really clear that it's in the spirit of Bond. Do you know what I mean? In the spirit of he's this very sort of dark, dark character who drinks too much and is a real anti-hero. And that's all through the books, right? And he went rogue in License to Kill. He basically um, told M to fuck off and went after the bad guys himself. You know, uh, Daniel Craig is constantly pissing M off, you know, doing things his own way. So having Bond as that rogue character, as long as it's done in a very Bond way, as long as it's done in a really Ian Fleming-esque way, you can make your Bond a bit different. As long as it's not James fucking Corden, because that cunt seems to be everywhere at the moment. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah and you see and and that's the thing if you if you are going to go for a slightly older actor and the, the thing with tom hardy tommy hardy's tom hardy's 44 this year by the time his first bond film came out if he was cast as bond 
he's likely to be at least 46. Yeah. Which is which is getting borderline, unless you talk about him being that slightly more grizzled um, which he agent with, with the other but, and, and expand the team. Yeah. Like you say, if this if this young black uh, female double O agent, right? You know, she, she, you know, and you, you can create some, you could create some, we're writing a script now, but you could create some tension in the script by saying she's had her shirt number taken off her now that Bond's back, right? And so she's 008 and he's 007 and she's fucked off by that because she thought she was doing a good job. Yeah. So they have, a, you have, you have tension between the characters and the team, which you always need for your, for your action franchise. It's easy to do. And if she's like a, a real, you know, if she turns out to be a really tremendous action star who can jump off the side of a building, it's like, great, Tom, you know, Tom Hardy can be, absolutely hard and, and, and going, you know, going full on, but he's a bit old and he's kind of limping a bit after a couple of his action sequences and she's still swinging off the side of the helicopter. The, the audience is getting what they want, right? You can definitely see it. Similarly, um, Chiwetel Ejiofor, because he um, he's about the same age as, as Tom Hardy, so he'd be in a similar boat. Now, what Chiwetel Ejiofor is, uh, is strong is he did a film called Serenity. I don't know if you ever saw it. No. It's a sci-fi film set in a oh, future. Oh, like, Fire, so, like Firefly, but they did the film. The film of Firefly. Yeah. Now, he plays a secret agent in that. And there's an action sequence in it where the main character, I mean, he's he's the antagonist in it. He's not the good guy. And the main character, Nathan Fillion, in that sort of starts throwing punches and trying to, um, you know, trying to kick uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor's ass. I think he's called the agent or something like that. And the agent just wipes the fucking floor with him with this kind of slightly like slight smile on his face. Yeah. And no one has ever looked so suave or so lethal who wasn't wearing a fucking dinner jacket. Yeah. <laughs> he, you watch him in that and you would go, I mean, this was 2005 and he would have been 28. And actually you could have looked at that and said, that's a fucking James Bond in the making. He could not be a more ideal candidate to play a super spy based on that. And I know he's done a lot of other stuff and he's done more dramatic and serious roles, but he, he could definitely do it. And the thing is you could easily market him as that because he's done it. Do you know what I mean? You could easily say, look at him, fucking look at what he's done in the past. He could easily pull this shit off. He's been in the Marvel franchise as well. He, he can swing, he can swing a, he can swing a weapon and, and you'd be in a similar boat there. The other way you'd go is, is a younger actor because, you know, uh, Sean Connery was 32 when he, when he played Bond, uh, George Lasenby was 30. Um, and uh, Danny Craig was was thirty eight, and you know, he wasn't that established an actor, so he seemed like a you know on the young side as well. And it is a young man's game if you're going to do the traditional Bond, because you take over as Bond, it's full on action, and you're going to be doing it for ten to fifteen years, right? So yeah. you don't want a forty year old; you want a thirty year old. And that's that's where I think their their the, the challenge in their casting would be if they if they go that route for a younger actor. You're looking at I mean, the guy off Bridgerton is his name is Reggie Reggie John Page. His problem is he's not that established. I know he's been really big in Bridgerton, but he doesn't. He's not that established in in film franchises. That's a TV series. Um, I guess there's a similar problem for a guy who I think would be a good pick called Sope Dirisu from uh, Gangs of London because he's only done what he's done on on TV, the films he's done have not been that big, but he would be absolutely brilliant for the action and everything. He, he could pull it off. Um, and Nicholas Holt, um, who, who's, you know, he'd be a much more traditional look for Bond and he's in his like early, early to mid thirties. Now he'd be the perfect age for it. Um, but uh, as you say, none of those actors jump out and go, Oh, they're, they're a big name, but they, you know, they should go for it. But none of these other actors who took on Bond were huge names when they did it, apart from Roger Moore, who was already quite famous off the TV. 
Sean Connery was a virtual unknown when he took over Bond. So was George Lazenby. Um, Timothy Dalton, people had obviously heard of him. He'd done, he'd done quite a few films. He'd been in Flash Gordon, a couple of our high profile films, but um, Bond was still the biggest thing he'd done to that point. Right. Similarly, Pierce Brosnan and, and Daniel Craig, people had heard of Daniel Craig and, he, and he'd emerged, but again, he became huge when he became Bond. So you're looking for someone who's just on the cusp like that. Do you know what I mean? Someone who's just like, he's he's big enough that when people, he's, yeah, he's big enough that when people announce that he's Bond, people have heard of him, right? But also he's big enough that he doesn't come with all the baggage of all the other things he's done in his career. Do you know what I mean? And I think I think the casting of the next Bond is going to be tricky because, as you say, there's two ways to go. If they're going to go, if they're going to go, you know, the, where Bond is still the main focal point of the action, they did a younger guy. So, what younger guy are you going to cast? If you're going to go, um, you know, just slightly change the emphasis on Bond and he's a bit more of an old grizzled campaigner like you've described, and change the emphasis, you've got to get the tone of that exactly right so that it's still Bond, right? Yeah, I know those are definitely the. Those are def- definitely the things you need to do. But it, it, it is interesting what people have talked about. What you mentioned is the idea of spinning off, uh, you know, and expanding the Bond universe. You know, that's um, that's a much more likel- uh, likely thing to do in, in films now, isn't it? I mean, you wouldn't, no one would really think to do that back when they were doing Bond in the, in the 70s or even the 80s, to have a Bond spinoff. But it's much more common now. I mean, they've done it on Fast and Furious. Jurassic World has basically got a completely different set of characters, you know, now than the, than the original Jurassic Park films. Um, you know, spinning off into something different is is quite common now. Yeah, and that, that's why the Marvel universe is so big, is that it's all it all happens within one kind of um, narrative continuity. But there's a bunch of different there's a bunch of different storylines going on. So it'll be interesting to see if they did that. Yeah, it's oh, you just don't know what they're going to do with it. But you just hope it's not the same kind of. It's almost formulaic now. It's I can't, other than Skyfall and Casino Royale, the other two Bond films that Daniel Craig has done, they've been quite samey. You know, they've mm-hmm. been, uh, you know, you I've never had a, I can't really think of any distinct moments um, from the film that made me like. I can't remember a single thing from Quantum of Solace and Spectre. I can remember the opening sequence and the massive explosion at the end. And other than that, the film just kind of blends into one. Mm-hmm. So, me, that's why I just don't want. It's that. certainly not as memorable, and and Spectre doesn't is not really a very memorable. Yeah, so I, I think I think Spectre was generally a bit of a misstep, and they they, they you, you can see they're trying to do something different with, with Spectre, where they actually create a villain who ties up all the plot strands of all the previous Daniel Craig films. That it's all been Blofeld, right? He's been behind Le Chiffre and he's been behind yeah, um, that whole plot in South America and he, and he somehow was manipulating Javier Bardem, but he's stretching it a bit there. I don't know. Javier Bardem was such a rogue character that how is he part of a plan? Do you know what I mean? Um, and, and then they made, you know, Ernst Blofeld his kind of uh, adoptive, like, stepbrother. And it's like, oh, hang on. You know, <laughs> it's like, and it's almost like they, they've midstream, they've tried to... Um, capture the you know you know having fast and furious everyone's like the next enemy is always like the the wronged kind of relative of someone they just fought do you know what i mean no, and it's no, almost no. that they're trying to do that and it has parallels to other other things that happened in bond because in um 
Here's a bit of trivia for you. You know how in the old, well, you, you might know this, in the old days, they always used to say at the end credits of the Bond film that's just out, they would always say James Bond will return in, and they would say the name of the next Bond film. So when Live and Let Die came out, they say James Bond will return in The Man with the Golden Gun, and then in, then at the end of The Man with the Golden Gun, they said James Bond will return in The Spy You Love Me, yeah? Then when The Spy yeah. You Love Me came out, they said James Bond will return in For Your Eyes Only, and they that that's 1977, and they're, in 1979, they're all set for James Bond, the next James Bond film, to be For Your Eyes Only, which is based on a short story um, uh, of, of Bond, so that it's it's within the, you know, they messed around with the continuity of the the books. It's it's not even relevant, but it's that's what they that's what they said they were going to do next. And then Star Wars came out. Well, Star Wars came, Star Wars came out the same year as uh, 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 the Spy Love Me. Now, the Spy Love Me was um, it was a very technologically advanced. That was the one that had the Lotus Esprit sports car that turned into a submarine. It's where the guy had a, an under an underwater. Um, uh, Lair, the the Bondland underwater lair, and was capturing submarines, and it's it's it a very high tech Bond film, so it's not like they were hugely old fashioned. But Star Wars was was at where it was at, space and lasers and everything was where it's at. So they changed their minds and said the next Bond film they were going to do was going to be Moonraker, and all of a sudden Moonraker, which <clears throat> the original story in a book isn't about Bond actually going to space, it's about space rockets being sent up and being sabotaged. Um, but then James Bond ends up in a space shuttle, and they're, they're, they're having laser fights. And Bond, Bond is floating in space and, and 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 firing lasers at the bad guys, because they almost had a bit of a loss of nerve to say, "Oh shit, we need to get with the times." Star Wars is where it's at. We bet we better make Bond a sci-fi film. Yeah. And Bond isn't a fucking sci-fi film. It's a ridiculous idea. I know. I know these things are almost sci-fi now. These these action films, but. It was. I think that was a real misstep, and they, they, and they've they've done that in the past. And even when they're probably trying to go in the right direction, like they were with Timothy Dalton, Timothy Dalton came in and said, "Look, look at the films that are coming out now: Lethal Weapon, Die Hard, um, you know these, you know Top Gun, these big action films that 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 are you know taking things to a new level. You can't just carry on plodding around and karate chopping a henchman and then stopping for a drink." in your safari suit, you've got to update this. And he tried to really push the tough action. And I think Timothy Dalton did a really good job, but he's doing it with the script writers and director and style of, of the, the Roger Moore films. And it was, you could see him straining to give the films the kind of toughness and proper action style that they needed. And he was limited by what he had to work with. Then for Goldeneye, they completely changed it up. So what they have to do now is, the good news is that Bond has done this before for for Pierce Brosnan, for Timothy Dalton, for Roger Moore, and for Daniel Craig. When they cast a new new Bond, they've also really shaken up the format. So I, I would expect them to do the same. I would expect them this time to say new Bond, new Bond film, because they've done that enough times before. And I think it's interesting they have the you know in 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 one sense the challenge they've got is if they're talking about making it like all action and having a bigger team that that, that does things well mission impossible does that how do they differentiate themselves you know they, yeah. they've got to kind of create this world and i think the um part of part of the bond law if you look at the bond films part of bond's like you know great strength is 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 having a really good colorful villain yeah, totally. Because even even Javier Javier Bardem, who was a you know a, a bit of a departure from Bond villains, he was a big character, yeah, and he um and he had a lair, you know, he had that island, that island that he'd taken over, yeah. And some of it looked, well, yeah. yeah, some of it looked a bit improvised, but he had that, um, he had that, um, he had the trappings of a proper Bond villain, 
and you need to have a good Bond villain. And in, in Mission Impossible, they it's almost like a that, that, that there's been an enemy organization that they've had to, to get. And they've had, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman was a good kind of that was obviously influenced by Bond villains, but. With Mission Impossible, it's been less vital for there to be like a, a massive villain with a massive, you know, you know, overblown, um, you know, plot to take over the world, which which is almost a parody now when you've seen Doctor Evil in Austin Powers, right? But having a big Bond villain to counterbalance Bond is is as important as anything else in the in the in the series. That's what made uh, Casino Royale work because Les Chiffre was a was a really good villain, and same with Javier Bardem in um, uh, in uh, in, in Skyfall, you look at all the good Bond films, the villain's almost as important as James Bond. You know? Yeah, if it's a weak villain, the film's rubbish. Um, yeah. And as much as I like Christoph Waltz, his villain, uh, Blofeld Inspector, was rubbish. Um, just wasn't wasn't as good as he could be. I don't know if it was bad writing or if it was just half hour. I, 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 I think it was a... I think the problem with Spectre was, one, going to all that trouble to make it someone who Bond grew up with, Right. And and to make him like the the, the secret force behind everything that's going on, it, it makes Bond a li- little bit stupid that he's not worked that out when he's done nothing but investigate these criminal organisations for the past ten years. Yeah, it's and it's a bit like bullshit. really, it's like not everything has to be your fucking evil stepbrother, you know. So, but you know, and it's a shame because Blofeld is an absolutely classic, you know, Bond character. He's been the subject of legal problems because Ian Fleming he, he sort of collaborated with somebody on one story and, and ended up getting into legal disputes with them, which meant at times they weren't allowed to even use the Blofeld name in the Bond films. But now that they've got the rights to Blofeld, they really fucked up by not um, uh, making him a better character because Blofeld is, he's the big villain. He's the what he's the guy sitting there stroking a white cat, which I, I know is a cliche now, but he's, he's, he's the big personality. He's the personality that fills the room, that comes up with the evil plan and has the massive international organization that makes Bond something of an underdog. And the other thing that's got to be big about these films is that even, you know, indestructible Ethan Hunt, who can run faster than a fucking car when he's chasing after Henry Cavill, he's got to seem like the underdog in some way. In Fallout, it was because there's two nuclear bombs about to go off and how's how's he going to pull that off, right? And, you know, and in, in a lot of the Bond films, Bond is on his own against this massive organization, loads of armed henchmen. If, if he's just a super spy who's tougher than everyone else, it, there's no drama because you know he's going to win, right? You have to create some illusion of drama. The bad guy's never going to win, but you have to create some stakes, which you do with a big villain and a big organization. So I guess the problem for for Bond is, is that do you take it back into the realms of fantasy where the bad guy is, um, you know, some madman with a secret underground volcano layer who wants to hold the world to ransom or he's going to set off a bomb, Yeah. Or do you like some of the Daniel Craig films have done? Try and root it a little bit more in um, uh, what's going on in the world. I mean, even Javier Bardem, he was a really kind of wild, wild villain. He was a he was a, a former spy who was burned uh, in in Hong Kong when they when they made compromises with the with the, the Chinese government in the nineties, right? Um, th- there was a, there was an element of this comes out of something that that is happening in world world geopolitics. Um, so the question is, do they go big, bad Bond uh, villain or do they go more realistic fighting the bad guys because something's, you know, because something in the world is happening, you know? Yeah, which is why I would, which is why I think they should go against kind of the, the formula that they've got for Bond films now and just try something different, like an old bitter Bond who's not part of MI6 anymore 
and he's just kind of lost it as he's just finally snapped. And maybe maybe he ends up being hunted down by MSX and, you know, he you know, he gets the, to the breaking point where he starts firing back and shooting towards MI6. And, you know, because he's, you know, he feels, you know, maybe he's just he's gone completely bananas. He feels so betrayed by, you know, whoever, maybe he feels betrayed by M or whatever. And it's just a totally, I know that that might not necessarily be a, a base story, you know, because I know every um, Bond film likes to follow kind of like based on one of the books by Ian Fleming. But Well, they've uh, got they've got no time for that anymore. There's no Bond stories left for that's them. That's what I mean. But that's what they, with, they, they, with Spectre, they just went back to Blofeld, who runs the, yeah. entire, the, yeah, the yeah. entire business and things like that. Whereas yeah. I think if they just go against the grain and have Bond as now the, not the antagonist or maybe like, uh, you know, the, the antagonist that you're rooting for kind of, I think yeah. If you're gonna if you're gonna root for him, there has to be something going on that eventually vindicates him. You know, if he's if he's gone rogue and everyone's against him, it, it'll you know it needs to turn out that what what he's fighting is, or that what he ends up kind of going after and shooting is actually the real evil. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and then there'll be some you know, uh, uh, yeah. Like you say, I think I think audiences will find it tough if he's not still 007. I think that that's part of your problem is that he's he's got to be 007. And he's got to be MI6, but he, he he can go rogue. He can be he can have been chucked out. Yeah, he can be you know because you know that's that's not you know that is a part of the Bond kind of canon for him to be at times you know working against uh, his own side. Um, him him being on you know you, you know what what I'm tr- what I'm trying to say is if he is going to be that he just needs to be. It, it, he still needs to somehow be the, the 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 hero of the action. Do you know what I mean? He still needs to somehow be connected to MI6 in some way. So if he's if he's if he's slightly off the reservation, you know, the, the, some of the other MI6 people might be after him, and some of the other MI6 people think he's onto something and decide to work with him. And there's your conflict. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think all of this works better, as you say, if they've got an expanded team. And I don't have much other sort of it, that expansion they're doing in the new bond film I, we've obviously talked a lot about why don't we get her name because i think she's got she, she's been her character name it's is now lashana something it's uh i don't know how to pronounce it um yeah lashana lynch and lynch. she plays nomi now i don't know who else they're introducing i mean um no and naomi harris is still there as money penny I can't imagine Leo Sidhu's character Madeline Swan continues with you know Daniel Craig in the when Daniel Craig's no longer Bond. Um, so I don't know they they might they might need to keep the Nomi character and then add a couple of more characters so that they you know because I think all of the stuff we're talking about works better if they they have a bit more of a team and they've been doing that a bit more you know they've got they've they've made. Tanner, the guy in the support staff, a recurring character. Q's got more involved. Money Penny's got more involved. Felix Leiter has been a more consistent presence in the Daniel Craig Bond films um, compared to previously when he popped he popped in from time to time. He was bit he was big in some of the some of the films like uh, uh, Live and Let Die. He he was very busy, but other times he wasn't a big part of it. So there's stuff you can do. Um, but I think I think you need to kind of give Bond more of a more of a, a group to be working with against or partly with or partly against to do all of that. Otherwise, it's it's like if if it's just Bond walking around on his own, who cares? You know. 
Yeah, it's it'll be interesting to see what route they take because it's not an easy one because you don't just want the same shit over and over again where it's yeah Bond is Bond starts uh, starts out like this and then this happens and now he's fighting to try and save the world like you need to make it I think you need to make it less grand and more personal stakes more personal risks where it's you know it's not the end of the world and it's not stopping someone putting a like detonating detonating a bomb or destroying a city it's like it's it's now it's not because i've never felt once that you know bond was ever at risk you know like even in skyfall when he gets accidentally shot by money penny it's um I you know you know he's not really dead right yeah it's only the start of the film so you need um, to you need to make the stakes a bit more personal maybe it's just you know bond is just done with mi6 but they don't want him to leave or he's he's something happens and he's just fucked off and he's sick of the world. i don't think it should be a, take, a case of taking revenge and he fully goes bananas and um He's the one that's just uh, he's the he's basically the villain now. But I think there needs to be a way that they make the stakes a lot closer and a lot yeah, smaller. And, but make and in that because the stakes are smaller, you can get bigger performances because it's a lot more personal. It's the interpersonal relationships that you know are at risk, or you can develop. Well, well that, that's the thing. You, you know, Bond's not going to die, and you know the nuclear bomb isn't going to go off destroying the world, right? Yeah. But Bond Bond could lose something or someone that really matters to him. But they've tried oh. that, haven't they? They've tried that with, um, oh, I forget her name, but she was in Casino Royale and she died. And, Eva Green, yeah. Yeah, and then you have, you know, because that means that they're just going to have Leah Seydoux's character die, and that's just that's just happened a million fucking times. Well, that, 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 I mean, that, that's the thing, though, is that's uh, this this comes back to, there's a couple of things you've got to do. One is expand the team that works with Bond, right? Because this is the other thing. You can't kill off Moneypenny, you can't kill off Q. Obvious, well, you could kill off Q because someone else could then become Q, right? Yeah, but you can't. But the thing is, though, those characters are there for continuity. I think this this new character Nomi is an interesting departure for 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 Bond, where you actually have a another double O agent involved. And I think if you expand the the MI six team that's working on the action, Bond is still the main man as far as the audience is concerned. But these other characters are there and are established. And the other thing you've got to do is, if you're going to be a franchise nowadays, you've got to think you've got to think two or three films ahead, haven't you? Yeah. So if you are exactly as you say, the personal stakes matter more because we we know we know the world's not going to be destroyed by the Bond villain. Action films that are met, designed for a mass audience don't have fucking nineteen seventy style downbeat endings where the bad guys win, right? So we know that, okay. Um, and as you say, they've done this a few times in in uh, on a Majesty's Secret Service. Spoiler alert: the film came out in nineteen sixty nine. Bond wins, but his wife gets killed, right? And in Casino Royale, the, the bad guys get killed, but Eva Green, a great, you know, first love of his life, dies. So, you know, and in, in Skyfall, again, we're killing you with spoilers here. He beats Javier Bardem, but M, you know, M, you know, Judy Dench's M dies. So, but the, the problem with that is those are all one-offs, right? You, as you say, if you, if you create personal stakes, it has to be this sustained thing, this kind of ongoing kind of thing. Because this is the other thing about spy, spy films are, you know, traditional spy films like your John le Carre and stuff, there's not really, you know, much kind of Bond blow-up a- a- action in it, right? But w- one thing that you could go back to if you want to make this more of an espionage film is that the status quo is always there. Do you know what I mean? In in, in these in these spy films, you you know, there's a mission and there's stakes and you're enth- enthralled by it. But at the end, the you know if it's cold war the russians and the americans are still at each other's throats at the end of it and the best you can hope for is that you averted some sort of disaster but kind of things carry on mm. you know 
and 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 there are bad, there are bad baddies or, or evil people or people on your own side have betrayed you. They're still there, and there's nothing you can do about it. And it leaves a bit of a sour taste. But then, if you do come back for another film, you've already got some built-in tension between characters to give it you again. So to kind of if they could go back to a world of espionage where some of the same same players are still around, and you know it's frustrating because you know espionage is a dirty business, and you have to kind of accept you know some unpleasant realities. You could you could go back to that a bit. And you could have the action because you're not going to make a two hundred million you know dollar film without car chases and explosions. But as you say, the 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 it's always the personal stakes that matter more. Do you know what I mean? That that personal drama is what when we talked about um, Thor Ragnarok. You know, it wasn't it wasn't just the explosions that mattered. It was the the characters and their relationships that mattered. So yeah, that, they really bounced off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's always been a slight challenge with Bond when he's a complete lone wolf. You know. And all the best, all the best Bond films have, to some extent or other, had his relations in it. License to Kill is one of my favourite Bond films, and his friendship with Felix Leiter, and uh, you know some bad things that happened to Felix Leiter are, are, are a big driver for the story. You know, and in Casino Royale's relationship with Eva Green really matters, and in Skyfall's relationship with M really matters. You know, that's that's the, the, all the high points of you know, and, and Goldeneye, his relationship with um, with the other double O agent in the story is driving the whole thing. And those those things actually make the Bond films work. You've got to have the action, but you've got to have the personal relationships as well. So as you say, people aren't going to t- turn up if there's no kind of big danger. If, if nothing big is going to blow up without Bond's intervention, no one's going to watch the film. But as you say, the what really matters is 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 a personal is a, a, a personal arc in, in the story. Yeah. And I think they need to think about that personal arc across a few films. I think we've seen a few franchises fall apart a little bit when they weren't thinking about the next film. I mean, the the last three Star Wars films are a case in point. They've really fucked that up because they the first the first in the series, um, The Force Awakens, was just a rerun of Star Wars, and then for the next film, they're like, "Oh shit, what do we do? We haven't who, who is Snoke? That's crap. What the, the, none of this stuff actually." None of it's been set up to continue the story properly. No. So the next director just threw it all out and started again. It's like, oh, don't do that either, you know? Yeah. And, and they weren't thinking, and by the end of it, they've done three films and the story arc just doesn't hang together. It's just so, shit, yeah. so that that's the other thing they need to think about is they're casting a Bond, but they're not just casting a Bond for the next Bond film, are they? Because every single, apart from uh, George Lazenby, who wasn't very good and fell out with the, with, with the makers of Bond, apart from him, Every um, every Bond actor's done at least four films, right? And, and yeah. usually more, right? So you're, you're casting a Bond for not one film, but like four or five films. So what do you have in mind for those four or five films? Now, it, it, it could be a different mission each time, which is completely unconnected, right? Um, but it, but fair enough, what are the relationships between the characters in that? What's his relationship to M, Moneypenny, Q, this new character, Nomi, Tanner, these other people, Felix Leiter. You've got those characters around Bond, so there might be there might be no continuity between the actual storylines of the next four films, but you would need continuity in the relationships with those characters. Those, that would give you the personal stakes that you're talking about. You know, has he fallen out with M? Is he fully an MI6? Is he not? Do you know what I mean? Is he, you know, what's his relate? You know, is he the same guy he used to be? Or, or is he kind of, as you say, is he older? Is he, is he working with them in a different way? All of that is what makes the story really tick. 
Yeah, no, I agree. It'll be hopefully they they try something new, but don't go mental like they did yeah. with Star Wars and the Last Jedi. Um, no, I, I mean it's it's interesting. We'll say it'll be interesting to see what they do because, uh, and uh, frankly, until you talked about what you talked about, the idea that of, of actually saying Bond is is a, is an older kind of grizzled character. And my, my only my only challenge with that is that has been kind of what they've been doing with with Daniel Craig for the la- for the last couple of films. But I can see that he's partly you know there are new agents now. And he's kind of his relationship to the action is different, similar to you know now that you know Tom Cruise is getting a bit older in, in Mission Impossible, you need other people like Jeremy Renner and, and and Rebecca Ferguson on the action, bringing other other agents with him. Um, because until you said that, I was thinking start again, get a new Bond in, and he's got to be in his thirties. I still think that's got to be an option on the table. I think because you could still do all the other stuff, you could do all the other James Bond stuff where he has a relationship with the other with other agents and other people that continue through the course of, of films, and you could still have the bit where he's not on MI6's side anymore, at least at least for a film or two. Because that that was that that was a really fun cliffhanger at the end of Dark Knight, wasn't it? Where you know Batman's cast as the bad guy, and then in the next film, everyone's still you know Batman's you know Batman's still you know a wanted man. Yeah. So you could have a Bond film where he wins, but MI6 have burnt him. And that happens in spy films all the time. If you want to go back to traditional spy films, you get disavowed by your own side. You get kind of framed for something you haven't committed. Your own side are going after you. Even if they don't entirely believe that you're the bad guy, it's their job to bring you in. This is like, you know, you've you've, you've got at least six scenarios there where you could do something fresh with Bond. And the, the trick is you can do something fresh with Bond as as long as it's still within the spirit of the Bond film. Do you know what I mean? And and that's been key because while Daniel Craig seemed like a very new Bond, and he was, I think he was terrific. I think he was an absolute shot in the arm for the franchise. His, his characterization of Bond is, is very, very true to the original books, just like Timothy Dalton was, yeah? So you do something new, but you keep it in the spirit of Bond, and that's really, really important. So even if Bond is... <clears throat> in a different relationship with MI5, and even if you bring another character and do something different, you've got to retain that original Bond spirit, that kind of lone wolf character, even if, you know, e- you know, even if I mean, we just talked about him having to be part of a group and I'm describing him as a lone wolf, but look at Wolverine, right? He's off on his own, but he has he has strong relationships with the other characters in, in his stories, right? That's that's what you've got to do. And I think I think that's it's it's a tricky balance because there's a huge amount of pressure for them to give the audience what they expect from a Bond film, isn't there? But exactly as you say, if they make it exactly like the previous Bond films, it goes stale, doesn't it? So how do you give them something new but not too new? Yeah. I'm just imagining a kind of similar to the opening of, um, remember Rogue One, where, yeah. you know, uh, the Mads Mikkelsen, who was also in uh, a James Bond film, is there with mm. his family just trying to keep it peaceful, keep it under wraps. James Bond is in a similar kind of circumstance. And then, you know, People show up at his door. Maybe someone. Maybe it might not even be MI six. It could be someone that's, uh, you know, it could be someone so mundane like James Bond murdered the guy's father, who was just some random henchman, and the guy's trying to take revenge back on James mm-hmm. Bond. And James Bond is out of the out of the business now. He's just trying to live mm-hmm. a normal life. He's sick of it. His body's been battered and bruised. He's just mm-hmm. trying to live a happy retirement, which I think is what they've done with an, in like with No Time to Die. But and I, that's my only concern is that that's sort of the start of No Time to Die, isn't it? But I don't think I think what happens in No Time to Die is that he goes back into all the mad stunts and flying mm-hmm. off of bridges on motorbikes and stuff like that. Whereas I'd rather it was a more not low key, but you know, it's it's not on, on a on a grand scale. This guy's now that James Bond is now trying to protect his family and being hunted down by, you know, whoever 
and it's not a massive, you know, it's not on the scale of Mission Impossible. It's not on the scale of, say, Spectre or Skyfall. Well, actually, actually, what I quite liked about Skyfall is that it was nothing to do with trying to save the world. It was James Bond. It, it's um, quite personal, wasn't and it? And I can't remember Albert Finney's character's name, but Albert Finney, the three of them just protecting his, his family's old house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was what was good about it. It wasn't, you know, I'm going to go through London. Yeah, and there, there was, there was, there was some storyline, wasn't there? But it was a pretext to get M's attention, wasn't it? The 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 exposing of the agents so they all get killed. That was to that was to drive them out so that he could so that Javier Bardem could take his revenge, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, and I think that's the problem that we've had not just in, in the James Bond franchise. I don't think it's actually necessarily a problem in the James Bond franchise, but across franchises and cinema in general is that especially in DC was just the fact that, you know, entire cities were being destroyed and it was so ridiculously Michael Bay. And mm-hmm. it was just like, oh, and Spectre had that. I don't know if it still, um, still stands, but they had the statistic for like the most expensive and largest explosion in a movie ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, people, I don't think people are kind of sick of that. They kind of like the, the kind of not toned down, but they kind of, a, a strength for Spectre was that it, it ended in London. It was just James Bond trying to kill, Blofeld. I know there was like other stakes and I can't remember them because Spectre was mm. fucking shit. But there were um the, the worst bit about Spectre was that um oh, right, Bond's got to blow up this uh, this facility in the desert. He fires one bullet and he blows it up. And then, oh Bond's got to bring down that helicopter, yeah. he fires one bullet and brings down Oh well that was easy. Just go home now. But yeah, but yeah, you're right. I mean I think I think they probably they're probably doing the right thing in Spectre by by as you say, creating a personal enmity because a lot a lot of the traditional bond films it's been done but it's it's now a cliche you know when when mike myers has has been doing spoofs of it you know um it's probably over that it's it's a a, it's a master villain who's got this needlessly complicated scheme to kind of rule the world he kind of that idea was killed in in one of the uh the austin powers films when i think he's he's come back from 25 years you know in uh, in suspended animation or whatever and he says, "Oh well, we make more money from our coffee franchise now." So no, 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 give me all that money. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a bomb and hold the government to ransom. And they're like, "It's like you're finding you're making this hard for yourself, you know." So that that's all a cliche now. So just having a big villain who wants to blow something up is kind of. But I think you know some of the things that worked in Spectre was that there were people behind the scenes who were trying to influence what was going to happen with the intelligence agencies now freeze out M and actually they were working for the enemy. And it wasn't, it wasn't a bomb going to blow up New York. It was, if these guys win, then, then, you know, we've been taken over from the inside, you know, and, and spy films work much better when someone on the inside is betraying someone. So that's something, but again, the, the, the other challenge we've got here is it's like you want a new bond, but you know, how, how do you? You've got to keep him somehow in, in keeping with the, with with the original Bond style. That's a a, a a careful balance. You want to you want to update the the films and make them different from the last ones, but not so different that no one recognises them as Bond anymore. And your other challenge is, you, you're absolutely right, James, isn't it? I think people have got a bit of explosion fatigue, haven't they? It's like yeah, CGI that the Earth has been blown up eight thousand times. You know, New York and Metropolis have been blown up so often that no one can get fucking home insurance anymore. Yeah. Uh, and and yeah. it's like you got to do something new with it, but whatever you do that's new needs to be exciting and on a and on some sort of grand scale. That's that's going to be the challenge. They're still going to want to see James Bond in a car chase in his Aston Martin. They're still going to want to see him in big locations. They're still going to want to see you know big action scenes. So somehow they need to find that balance. Um, 
and it'll be interesting to see what they do. I mean, I'm optimistic because they've done it before quite successfully, but they are going to have to really, really freshen things up this time. And they've they've got to they've got to do it so that it's it's up to the minute. They've got to do it so that it's current and doesn't seem old fashioned and stale. But it's still got to be quintessentially Bond somehow, and that's what they've got to pull off. Yeah, I hope I hope they, I hope they do it justice though. I, th- I think I think what where, what we've done in summary is I think they've got a couple of options of of where they go with Bond. They could go with a younger guy because Bond is a is a character who needs to get involved in a lot of action. Um, or they could go with a slightly older actor, and I, 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 you know Idris Elba, he really would be kind of the you know slightly older kind of style of Bond. Um, but you could also do it with Tom Hardy or Chiwetelegi Four, and those they would both be very interesting. Bond, you know, they both bring a an intensity, slightly different intensity, but definitely they bring an intensity to the role. You could do that. Um, I still have dark horses in Sophie Dirisu and Nicholas Holt. If they want to go for a younger guy, but I think it's hard to it's hard to pick. You know, who the who the new Bond is going to be because he could be miles off. Um, and I think the other things we said that would make it interesting if they expand the they expand the the double O group. I think we both agree that that's going to be worth doing. They keep this Nomi character, probably introduce some, you know, some more of that because I think all of the other franchises that work well at the moment have got an ensemble. You know, even even when a Marvel film is is just a standalone superhero, they have a group, don't they? And uh, you know, Mission Impossible is a group. All of the, all all the other good franchises have got a group of main characters um, because, as you say, in 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 it's saying Mission Impossible. Ethan, you know, we, we know Ethan Hunt's going to stop the nuclear bomb going off, but he doesn't want to lose his his wife, right? He's terrified of what might happen to his wife. He's also worried about what might happen to his his teammates. And you create those personal stakes. Um, we're looking for some sort of villain or some sort of storyline, which is less of the traditional, you know, megalomaniac in an underground lair. It's got to be something a bit more up to date than that. They've got to come up with something new, something with a bit more of a personal challenge with Bond. And we're thinking maybe Bond is... It, it, sort of a more of a maverick character, not entirely not entirely working within MI six in some way. He might be, you know, there might be some you know challenge going on there between between people and and some sort of espionage scenario where different different people are, are stabbing each other in the back and people have to take a side because that's oh, it's also a classic idea is if people if people within the same group suddenly have to take one side or the other, um, you, you have uh, you have some you know some interesting sort of conflicts for the story. Um, in terms of style, one thing that's very key is that in um, when when they started doing the the Daniel Craig Bond films, they didn't just get a, a main actor who kind of brought the same kind of tough, hard edge to it that Matt Damon brought to to Jason Bourne. I don't know if you know this, James, but they actually used some of the same technical crew for the new Bond films that had worked on the Bourne films. Right. Okay. And you know that kind of action style. I mean, it's very two thousands, and I think it's gone away now. But that kind of shaky cam action style that, that the Bourne films um, uh, did, that, that they definitely adopted a certain style for their action films. And similarly with Goldeneye, you know, Goldeneye opens with with James Bond doing a world record bungee jump and then going in and running. There's a lot of running and diving out of, of windows and, and and driving fast and things blowing up in Goldeneye because they wanted to bring the the series up to the minute with what a current action film should be. The question is, if they have to do that with, with the new Bond film, what is, what is the current action film? What is a current action film at the moment? What's the style? You'd have to go. It's interesting because there's barely been any films out. Um, Yeah. You've got to go back a couple of years, 2019, 2018. 
and and some some of the big action franchises are things that Bond couldn't possibly want to emulate, like Marvel action. You, yeah, they're right, not going to turn Bond into a superhero yeah. with powers, right? So that's out. Um, Fast and Furious is, you know, that might as well be a superhero film. It's so unrealistic now. And it's all about cars doing over-the-top things. So that's out. So what, what else would we describe, say, from 2018, 2019, when films were in full production? What were the traditional tropes and styles of an action film that, or, or, or the, what the current tropes of an action film are that, that a, a, an action franchise needs to, to be in touch with? Oh, I don't know. I think op- the opposite of everything Marvel and DC has done, because while I enjoy mm. Marvel, not as much DC, is that it's just too grand. It's too large and it's too explosive and it's just, it's too far-fetched. You want it to be realistic, not realistic, because obviously spy films are very over the top, but you want it to be a mm. lot more, you know, you don't want James Bond, like I've already seen the trailer for No Time to Die and he's using a motorbike to you know, and a, and a rope to fly off a bridge in somewhere in continental Europe or something like that. So it's that's that's the other challenge is that someone else, namely Mission Impossible, is already doing that really well. Yeah. So I think it, you might have to kind of go back to what the Bourne franchise did. I mean, Bourne Legacy was fucking shit. I didn't like it. Was it Bourne Legacy? It's, no, Jason well, Bourne. The, yeah, yeah. Bourne I, yeah, I was disappointed with that. It was just more of the same. But kind of go back to the Bourne Ultimatum where he can't be he can't be too over the top. He can't be too loud because he's being watched constantly. So he's got to be very discreet and make sure, you know, he's avoids any CCTV and avoids, you know, any pair of eyes that are looking for him. Uh, but he still has to be quite badass when it has, when it comes to it, you know, lots of close quarter fighting and things like so, that. I think that's yeah, where so, it might have to go. Just So, so, so stealthy, you, you need someone who's got a bit of, um, you, you need a filmmaker who's got the ability to create tension. <clears throat> and, and actually some of the, um, some of the, the Mission Impossible films had some really interesting stuff like that. I mean, I thought Rogue Nation's um, final scene was really good because it's like um, it's hand-to-hand fighting at night in, in London landmarks. You know, the bit where Rebecca Ferguson's taken on that henchman in, inside. I think it's somewhere in like Temple or some part of the city of London. Um, and it's, you know, they're running down streets and they're trying not to get caught. You know, you need someone who can do that and actually say, if, if Bond is going to break into a building or one of the rest of the double O team is going to break into a building, they should be, they should be genuinely stealthy. Do you know what I mean? They shouldn't kind of drive a tank through it and then blow it up and run out. Do you know what I mean? They should actually have genuine kind of, uh, quiet. And then the tension derives from, are they caught or, you know, is someone being held hostage who they have to get out and they can only do that if they're quiet or if they're careful, you know, and then actually have some really ex- explosive action. You're going to have to have a car chase, though. You're going to have to have a car chase, and you're going to have to have an explosion. So it, I think it comes down to the you need a really skilled director, don't you? Yeah. You need a really that. skilled director who's going, to, who's going to make that work because you can't make it too low-key, otherwise no one's going to care. I think that's, I quite like that, Kerry Georgie Fukunaga. He's a, he's a good director. I really like True Detective. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm interested to see what he's going to do with this. I mean, you know, Danny Boyle... It's a shame. It's a you know we talked about Danny Boyle, didn't we? About him being being fired from Bond, and, and I do. I, I just think he's never done a two hundred million dollar film before. Um, so you know, it's it's maybe he was just too too you know too, too off the wall and too different. But it's interesting. Maybe what Danny Boyle was trying to do with the Bond franchise is what they need to go and do now. We don't know quite what he was going to try and do there. You know, maybe someone is going to make it a bit more. You know. Uh, a bit more, a bit more edgy, and, and go a bit left field is what's needed, and that's happened a few times. Like the Timothy Dalton 
what Timothy Dalton tried to do with Bond, he, tr- he tried really hard for it, and the audience wasn't as up for it as they were for the Roger Moore ones. But now people would – that's what people want from Bond. So maybe maybe the sort of ideas that Danny Boyle had are the things that the Bond franchise needs to entertain now, you know? Yeah, potentially. I'm excited and also worried. Well, that's the thing. Maybe they need to. Maybe they need to reinvent their own action genre. Maybe they need not to say, "Well, we're not just going to follow the crowd and have big explosions. We're not just going to follow the crowd and have whatever action sequences were in the last Matt Damon film. We're going to do something that's brand new for us." I mean, let's see what the new director does. I mean, as you say, he's done some good stuff before, and um, um, you know, Kerry Fukunaga. His um, I don't think he's done many big films, has he? But he's done some interesting stuff on TV. He did um, the Beast of No Nation, and he did. That was very good. I think I think they have a challenge, and I think they need to. I think they need to reinvent themselves as much as they as they've ever needed to. We'll see how they get on. Yeah, totally agree. That's all for this month's episode of Double Reel. Thanks for listening and for making it all the way to the end. Thanks also to my co-host, James Adamson. The podcast was edited in Audacity and hosted on Anchor FM. We are grateful for their continued support. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. The Illusionist is not very easy to find on disc, but you can stream it on Amazon Prime or buy a digital copy from the usual sources. To find out more about Bruce Lee's The Game of Death, we recommend you watch the documentary Bruce Lee, A Warrior's Journey. Outside of Double Reel, keep an eye out for announcements for a new non-film related podcast we plan to release in future. So this is me, James Adamson, signing off and... This is me, James Adamson, signing off. Your next Double Reel podcast episode will be our regular episode 16 next month. Keep an eye on the socials for any bonus or special episodes we decide to do in future. Stay tuned after these credits for a time-inverted second helping of our Tenet discussion. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe and tell your friends. Until next time, stay safe, watch lots of films, and may your life be as awesome as you pretend it is on social media. I don't have a Hans Zimmer sign off, so I'm just going to say, fuck Pretty Patel. <laughs> Here we go. The, the thing is, though, it asks a lot of the audience. It says to the audience, not all of this, that there's two things the audience can do. The audience can just go with it. All the audience can say, if you want to follow this, you are going to have to really follow this. And it might take a second watching for all of those things to, to, to come through. And what looks like something that is messy is just that it's not all clear. But it, the more you look at it, the more the, the beauty of it is that it's a film about time inversion, that if you go back over, if you go back through and do it again, you you add another layer and 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 you and you and you get nearer to where you want to be. If you go back through this film again, it becomes clearer. And then you go back again. And you go, oh my god! Look at look no, at what's contained in all this. Is, and I thought that was amazing. 
No, I think the thing is, is that the fact that you've gone in and you've had to do all that explanation for it when the film should be doing that itself. I'm not asking for exposition and it all to be explained out to me, but the fact that I've watched it twice and none of that is clear. And it's already well, like, you know, they do they do forge a friendship and they do get close and they do manage to, um, you know, do the mission and they manage to, you know, yeah. build that bond. That's fine. I don't have any problems with that. It's just the actual showing of the action and the sequences after they say they're going to do it, is so clunky and so messy that it's just, it's not, there's no rewatchability. I've got, I've got no incentive to rewatch that film a third time because I've watched it twice now. He's basically spat his toys out of the pram and said, well, cinemas need to uh, invest money into speakers. So therefore I'm going to make no effort to refine the sound of my films. Go fuck yourself. You know, the, no, there's, there's no justification for that because, okay, I get that you're trying to make a political point, but rather than have like a, not political point, but you know, you're trying to make a point and instead of getting something done about it, you've just basically made the, the audience suffer as a result because not everyone has, one, not everyone has the money to spend £15 to £20 on an IMAX ticket. Sometimes people have to spend money on a family for a four ticket where it's like £4.50 each and that might be in a shitty cinema um, where the speakers aren't very good. So that that's, that's annoying. Because you're saying, oh, well, they should do more. But sometimes people can't afford that. And sometimes little cinemas can't afford to do that. So that that's just snobby. And, you know, it feels like, although he's trying to make a point towards cinemas, it's actually the watchers that are suffering from it. And the film suffers as a result because it's terrible. The Especially the, the sequences with Aaron Taylor Johnson using the face mask and things like that. But the fact that the film is, the fact that you're doing more explanation and trying to explain the plot more now than the film ever could do unless you watch it about 15 times it's ridiculous because i'm not watching a film 15 times i've got an incentive to watch interstellar interstellar again when i watched it the first time i went oh that ending's like it's a bit mind-bending and i thought about the ending for interstellar for like a couple of days and then i went to watch it again and i was like all right okay but, but the rest of the film is good to watch you got the sequence with the uh the, the planet with the massive waves you got the, the the sequence with um when they go to the the Matt Damon planet spoilers. I know he's not yeah. even he's not even yeah, cast, yeah. but you've got you've got cool shots. You've got the shots where you go through the wormhole. You've got the redocking sequence. You've got those really cool bits. I don't think there's a single point in Tenet where I'm like, oh yeah, okay, I'll power through it because there's these really good bits. To there's these excellent polished you know sequences because there isn't there isn't. And I know you really like this film. You defend it, but those you'll even admit yourself that it's it's a hard watch. Even if you enjoy it, it's a hard watch, and it shouldn't be a hard watch. It should be a challenging watch, and I kind of like oof. There's some visceral stuff going on here, but it's not. It's just it's a big clunky time inverted mess. That's basically what intent is to me. And look, and I understand, and I think what this is is that people come down on one side or other of this film, and I think it's similar to Dunkirk. Is that Christopher Nolan has done what he set out to do with this film, and some people are going to like it, and some people aren't. I, t- I get, I get what you're saying, but I loved it. I thought it was. I thought I was thrilled from beginning to end of this. I thought the, I thought the aeroplane going into the the Freeport was stunning. I thought that first fight sequence where one person's going forward through time, one going back through time. I thought that was amazing. I loved the 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 heist and then reverse car chase in Talon. I thought the battle at the end where some people are going forward through time, going through back through time, and there are explosions going on backwards and forwards at the same time while the music is being played forwards and backwards at the same time. I thought it was an absolutely stunning, daring piece of cinema. And at the same time, I totally understand why a lot of people for entirely valid reasons would be very pissed off by it. What I would say is, is that over time, I, I think that more people are going to revisit this film and more people are going to go back over it and, and will uh, will come to appreciate what it had. At the same time, though, if someone feels that a film that hasn't, you know, that requires further viewings to com- to completely get its point across has failed, that's a valid point. I think that's a completely defensible uh, like stance to take on cinema. 
I, I just think similar to what um, uh, Kubrick did with 2001 and A Clockwork Orange and Barry Lyndon is that he's he's leaving large parts of this film wide open. And and, and similarly, you've watched something like Barry Lyndon, that the whole, almost the whole second half of that film, people will watch it and have wildly different interpretations of what's going on. Why does this character kind of suddenly find himself stuck and unable to do anything? And it doesn't explain, but there is an explanation in there. And if you're not prepared to go with that, I think that's entirely valid. And I'm sure for the sake of us, us enjoying a Christopher Nolan film together, I hope that what he does next time is something that we both love, like Interstellar was. Yeah. Um, but I, I think personally, I, 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 I absolutely loved Tenet and I loved what it was trying to do. And I think this is going to go down as his most divisive film, but also his most ambitious. And I think it will, um, I think it will continue to be discussed for a long time. It was, I certainly think it deserves some credit for just going out and, and putting itself out there when, when no other big film was prepared to do so. Um, I certainly think that it was it was it was a brave move, and I get what some people are saying. It's a similar thing when Nolan Marie says everyone should shoot on film, and not everyone can afford to. Um, and I think what some people did was some people did actually adjust the mix of of, of tenets so that it would work in their cinemas. And I think that's what people are going to have to do from now on with these films because I, I think I think filmmakers pushing the boundaries is a good thing, and he's really pushed the boundaries here. And I think it's it's very interesting that someone's prepared to do with this with a film that big. Because when he did Memento, that film cost $9 million, and that's a head fuck of a film. And I think it's really interesting that there are people out there prepared to do that in films as big as, as Christopher Nolan films. Um, but I certainly wouldn't say to anyone who didn't like it or that you just didn't understand it. I totally get it. He's tried to do something very specific here, and it's not going to be for everyone because he has made a film that is – could be described as messy or could be described as this is really unclear and not all of it is 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 spelt out as much as some people film feel a film should should be and this is not an argument of oh film should be simple it's this asks a lot of its audience and i just thought it this this was worth it this film was worth the work for me but i understand someone saying it wasn't worth the work for them yeah no i think we'll just have to agree to disagree um i'm sure there are folk like yourself that loved it for like me that disliked it but to me, it was yeah. I think it's just a a, a a film we'll never agree on. Understood. And I thought I thought that emotional core really mattered. And I, look, I, I appreciate sometimes people do find Christopher Nolan's writing a bit clunky. A lot of people felt that a lot of the dialogue in Interstellar with Anne Hathaway talking about her the reason why she wants to go to a particular planet is that she she's in love with or was in love with. Um, you know that the scientists who went there and a lot of people went, oh, that's so fucking clunky. Come on, Nolan, you can't write human beings. You know, I get it. And, and Chris, uh, Stanley Kubrick received similar criticism that people didn't see the human element in his films because he didn't think he needed to make that much effort to to show emotion in his films. He 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 decided he let the audience bring their own emotion to it. And and sometimes his films can seem a bit cold as a result. I I thought it was I thought it was fantastic, and I I thought the way the film plays out is at the beginning all you see is there's stuff that's coming backward in time. This doesn't make any sense. And then you get a little bit more and you get a little bit more, you get this breadcrumb trail. And then you see people going through turnstiles and then going back through time. And you go, this doesn't even fucking make, I, 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 don't, I don't understand what's going on here. But all the protagonist knows is that Kat is, is going to die if she, if she doesn't get taken back where she can recover. So he goes through. And in the course of going through the turnstile and going back to Oslo and going back over the job where they, where they blew up the, um, uh, where they smashed into the, 
the, the the reserve with the with the aeroplane. He knows there's a turnstile there. That's where they got to go back to. He's got got to go back over himself. And in the course of that incredibly striking fight scene, where he's fighting himself in two different time zones, you start to see a little bit more about what's going on. I, I, I thought by the end of it that by going back over these extraordinary action sequences over again, back through time and then go back through it, back through time and go back through it. By the end of it, you've got this grasp of what's going on, and not everyone. Because, and, and I think if 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 you if you feel like the the director's got to you know do a bit more to to bring the audience along with you, it's a valid it's a valid criticism. And, and some people just went, Nolan, for fuck's sake, man, I shouldn't be the one doing all the work, and I get it. But I felt it repaid that work because by the end of it, I went, oh my god, now now's what now I get. There's the way time inversion is going backwards and forwards across each other, and then the red team and the blue team going across Stask 12 at the end and that inverted fight I can't, I kind of got it by then and then and then watching it over it just it overlays you see there's all these extra bits in it that that completely that completely work and I thought it was absolutely amazing because I felt there was this this sense of clinging on by your fingernails to a reality that you don't understand anymore and step by step um you you understand enough of what's going on and then by going back over it and back over it by going back through time again you they're, they're fighting the same battle forever. The whole thing is like a time palindrome because Neil is essentially from the future and has been time inverted. And at the beginning, he's at the opera house saving um, the protagonist because the protagonist is his best friend and the, and the protagonist doesn't even know him. And at the end of the film, Neil's going to die. The protagonist has only just got to know him. And Neil says, don't worry, we've got a whole life together over the next 10 years. You, you've just, you just don't know it yet. Yeah, but and, how, no, but how can you how can he be time inverted the entire time? He's been time inverted from the very start when he goes back through the time version so he can have conversations with the protagonist and Elizabeth Debicki. It's messy. It's shit. If he's been time inverted from the very start and knows that oh I saved him at the opera house, but then he goes back through time inversion because they spend time in that fucking tent on the ship. Yeah, you know that's messy. It's messy and it's wrong. And if you make a film that's messy and you don't make everything watertight, Inception is watertight. Interstellar, it's almost watertight because the final thing it is. The final shot is very, the final kind of sequence is a bit messy. It's not watertight, but Inception is watertight and it works. You can't have a film where the oh, you ju- we have ten years together, but you just don't know it yet because I I I die just there, but we you know we're we're fine. It's like, but he goes back through time inversion time and time and again. So that stuff is kind of stuff that fucks with the audience's mind, and it doesn't make if it doesn't make sense, it can go and fuck itself. You know, I get that it has really good shots in it. The fighting yourself is really good, but you you lose the stakes of everything. Oh yeah, a time inverted bullet's really bad because it rips through you and it's really dangerous. But Elizabeth Devicki, who is a she isn't a built woman; she's a relatively small, like thin, you know, frame. She gets shot. And it's like, oh, you know what? We'll just put her back through time inversion and operate there. She'll be fine, and she's fine. You take away the stakes of everything. That's the problem with them. Um, because in the films, it's like, oh, yeah, look at this bad shit that's going to happen. And then he takes away the stakes of it all. Same thing happened in Dark Knight Rises. Bane absolutely fucking kicks his cunt and breaks his back. And Batman's back gets fucking fixed in a fucking cave in, is it Turkey or something like that? Or it's in, it's in some uh, Middle Eastern um, or North African prison. And some guy can just fix his back with a bit of rope. And you take away the stakes of it all. You can't have. You can't try and give me the stakes of the uh, the stakes of the world when I get that there's more than just you know the entire population. There's more personal lives at stake. But you can't. You can't have the stakes of the film compromised because you just want to say, "Oh, look how bad an inverted bullet would be." But it doesn't fucking do anything to anyone. She gets shot in the fucking side from a yard away by her. Not even a yard. It's literally on her skin. So it's 
directly into her body. No, the stakes are gone completely because she's fine. We'll just we're all play, we'll, we'll we'll invert you guys and she'll be fine. You can't have the stakes, of the world being at risk, and then kind of undercut that line by saying, "And my son," like you know what I mean? It's it's messy, it's clunky, and I know that you like it because it's got it's got some really good shots and there's some really like tense moments and there are some stakes in it. But for me, the stakes are all completely undercut by a guy's lazy writing and not putting his heart and soul into making the film absolutely watertight. That's my opinion of it. He'd probably disagree with it if he's, if he's listening. And I mean, I, I, I mean, I, a pile of fucking balls. Sorry. See, the thing is, I think he, the, the yeah, reason yeah. he's, the reason he's, he's actually turned some people off his last two films is because I think he's putting so much more into it. I think he is actually making films more and more personal films now. Um, and I think what he's, he's not making as much effort to make the film um, sort of stack up in a, in a, in his neater sense. Cause actually inception is a very neat film. I, I think what, what you see in Tenet as, as it being messy is that it's not all clear but I do believe it's all there in the story. If you go through it, if you go back through it, the fact is that they they looked at her and said she's going to die, and the protagonist said, "No, you know there there is a way to do it, but you have to you have to go through the the, the turnstile, and it takes a it takes days, and it's touch and go." I felt that it wasn't like an easy solution. I felt that it was like um, it, it was something that they had to kind of trust that, that that this might work, take her back through, and see if it works. And it's all about the almost taking a leap of faith that we've got no fucking choice to so go through this term style and see if it works. And there is an element of suspension of disbelief that you've got to keep this character going because her being shot creates drama that, oh my God, is she going to get killed? And then the fact that they go to all the trouble to kind of try and save her shows that the protagonist is not prepared to leave anyone behind, that it's not actually worth the struggle if you just let there just be hundreds of casualties and say, oh, well, it's all right for the greater good. And I... I I, I, I went with it. And in terms of the story being messy, I, I actually think that it the that there is so much in the story that it 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 looks like there are loose ends. And I think there are some loose ends in the story, but I, I think it all stacks up. The problem for I I'd say for people who aren't necessarily, you know, happy enough to go with it, or someone who who basically sets the standard on a film that it should make sense in one viewing is that it's not 100% clear. It's all there, but it's not clear. But if you, if you watch it back, you go, I oh, see, that makes sense. There's details like the name of the person who sold the fake um, art um, uh, uh, piece of art to Kat that got that got her into the whole problem with Sator. Um, his name is... I've got this listed here. Um, his name is Aripo. And that is that is an anagram of of opera, which which means that the Arepo guy is probably a code name of some kind, and that at some point the protagonist chose to go back in time and uh, entrap Cat because that was the way to get at Sator. And what what he's done is is that they get what what happens in in, in the reality of the film, the protagonist has got to the end of this story where they've got through the battle at Stalsk Twelve and they've averted the algorithm's kind of destruction. And they've they've killed Sator, but he realizes that there is now a time loop between that point and the point where they start, you know, fighting this battle, where they're going to have to keep going back to protect it. He is he is trapped in a time loop because if he doesn't keep in that time loop, 
something is going to go wrong and this algorithm is, is going to happen again because these these turnstiles exist and these battles exist. So he, he has decided at the end of that point that he's going to go back and so is Neil to fight this battle essentially with for, for the rest of their lives in this time loop to protect this this point in in this almost like this rip in time where the world could be destroyed and all the rest of it him and neil forging their friendship him getting cat involved and and having to kind of get her out of it again it's the price he has to pay for the mission and you see at the start that he's prepared to do anything for the mission because he takes that suicide pill and then he goes back through and um and essentially has recruited himself to to fulfill his own you know to to fulfill his own future i thought it was absolutely mind blowing but at the same time i do think it stacks up you keep going back through it and that's why he goes back in time or in, goes back through the time turnstile to kill priya before she can kill cat because you know cat says i'm tying up loose ends and and what he says is no there should be loose ends it's not worth killing off this person we'll leave the loose ends and I'll just watch. I will just watch and Neil and I will just watch this time loop from the end of the mission to the beginning of the mission for the rest of our lives. We'll go back through, we'll check up, we'll check the messages, we'll go back through the turnstiles, we will watch. We will watch over everyone and and fight this battle any number of times. The beautiful thing about Neil is that he goes back to the opera and he saves uh, the protagonist and he goes back at the Battle of Stout and, and he he's the one who who um has to, to go in when the the the, the area gets sealed up uh, so that he can actually avert disaster and he knows he knows before he goes and does any of that that that's his he's going to have to go back through that time scale and he might have to go back through again and he might have to go back through again and then eventually he's going to get killed because that's his journey and I thought it was amazing to to see that play out. It, it's interesting and I think where what, what what's happened is is that with these with the last couple of of Nolan films. People have found that you know people who are fans of Christopher Nolan have found themselves or have at times found themselves on the same side of the discussion as people who aren't fans of Christopher Nolan at all. I would say up until the Dark Knight Rises, um, people liked Christopher Nolan or they didn't. It was as simple as that, you know. But there were people who went, "Oh, I don't really like," the, you know. They would say they don't like Nolan. They don't like the Dark Knight. It's you know, why are you making why are you making this all so somber and ponderous? It's Batman. Don't be ridiculous. Or Inception. You know, the, what, what's all that about? And those people, you know, just just you say, James, they're not idiots. They're just not turned on by what Christopher Nolan is doing, right? Yeah. And you know, forget those those film fans are morons. If we, we we talked about toxic fandom. There's nothing in the world that that uh, a, a, a fucking fan on the internet can't can't piss everyone off about like oh no you're not stupid to you're too stupid to understand it fuck them they're idiots um the interesting thing about christopher nolan is for a long time it, you know if you liked christopher nolan you know you liked batman begins and you loved you know that you know the prestige and dark knight and inception it was because what christopher nolan does and the way he does it appealed to you and you felt oh this is amazing filmmaking and other people were just never going to like it because they didn't they 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 didn't buy in to that and it's a matter of taste. You either buy into it or you don't. But what's really interesting is that Christopher Nolan is really pushing the boundaries now. And there were people who really didn't like Interstellar because they thought the the whole final act where, you know, you're, if you can exist in five-dimensional space, the way you travel through that is by being able to focus on something that's really important to a time that's really important to you. And it it did it in a way that isn't, in, altogether straightforward some of it you have to make your mind up about what's really going on and he's 
he is somehow able to send Morse code back to his daughter back at the time. And that shows you how um, uh, the, the, the future can be saved by future humans who are able to exist in another dimension of space. And you, you can't travel through time, but you can send messages through time. And some people went, that's fucking ridiculous. He's fucking in the bookcase. What a ridiculous idea. I hate it. And other people like us went, I love that. I, I, I'm, I'm on board with 100% of what happens in Intercell. I think it's amazing. And But I had to say, I had to understand why some people would look at that, think it's absurd and not go along with it. In the same way that people came out of Dunkirk and went, that's amazing. I felt like I was there. I feel so much, I felt all the fucking power of what happened to Dunkirk through watching that film. And I went, well, well I didn't. I felt that the way he did it made it feel like there was only three aeroplanes, six boats, and 12 people in the whole thing. And I didn't get a sense of the scale of Dunkirk, and, and I felt that the, the performances were too muted, except someone else has gone and watched exactly the same film and felt exactly what Christopher Nolan wanted them to feel from watching the film. And I think what's happened is he is now pushing the boundaries with what he does, which means that he's going to bring out a film, and some people just aren't going to like it, not because they don't get it, not because they're not intelligent enough to get it, but because he's trying to do a certain thing which some people are just going to be turned off by. And he is he seems to be going into a phase of his career that Stanley Kubrick did. I mean, 2001 A Space Odyssey, an interesting parallel, not because you know it makes you intelligent if you get the film, but because Kubrick started making films where some people are going to watch the last half hour of that film and go, that's bullshit, this, none of this makes any sense, and other people are going to... Um, are going to go with it and, and, and are going to love what he did with the film. And I, and I think Tenet is, is as yet the biggest expression expression of that. And for, for, for the sake of Christopher Nolan's own career, I think if he carries on dividing the audiences the way he does, he might struggle. But personally, I think what he was trying to do with Tenet was basically the most ambitious film he's ever made. And I, for one, I absolutely loved it. I thought it was an incredible feat of filmmaking. I loved every minute of it. Um, and I don't, I've heard all the criticisms of it and I have to acknowledge them. I can understand why people would watch that and go, fucking hell, this is ridiculous. Because one of the key things is that he's trying to make the film immersive. The reason that the main character doesn't have a name, uh, or, or you don't hear his name. And the reason that you are disoriented in the way that you are is because he's trying to put the audience right in the middle of the action. And from minute to minute, it might not be clear to you what's going on. And you have to kind of strain to go, shit, this is all going to go off in one second. Where are we? Fuck. And if you're not prepared to go with that, if you, and I think, I personally, I think it's reasonable for an audience to expect the director to tell the audience a bit more about what's going on. I totally get it. I totally get it. And people who dislike that film for that reason, I totally understand. But what I loved about it was I felt like I'd been dropped into the middle of this and I was going to have to, and I felt all the kind of tension of, not only needing to stay alive from moment to moment while all of this shit is going on, but the world has got to be saved and it can only be saved if you can get your head around what the fuck is going on. And I honestly, the first time I watched that film, the hairs were standing on the back of my neck pretty much the whole way through. I thought it was an absolutely stunning piece of work. What, what's interesting about it is, is that he's one thing that's going to remain controversial about Nolan for, you know, in recent years is that ever since interstellar, he has started to make the sound mixing of his films more and more challenging. And, and he came out and said in an interview that in his previous films, what he was doing was he was doing less with the sound of his films because he knew how many cinemas had shit sound. And he said, 
He doesn't want to make his films for cinemas with shit sound. They, the cinemas, should have better sound, and to so that his films, you know, so that his films play on them. And I think that's a, it's a very Christopher Nolan thing to say. It's the same thing as him always wanting to do things on film. But if you do watch the film with with a decent sound mix, you can follow everything that people are saying. The, the other thing that's challenging about the film is that I mean, I've watched it three times now. I watched it twice in the cinema. Once where a cinema didn't have a very good sound mix and once where it did have a good sound mix and the difference was quite notable. And I've watched it at, at home on, on, on Blu-ray and I I got it. I got what was going on the first time, but I was clinging on by my fingernails. And that was part that was part of the ride for me to be like, fucking hell. And but with each with each um re-watching of the film, it repays further viewing and again it's it's entirely reasonable for an audience to say i paid for a ticket i watched the film once if if i don't get it the first time then the director has has failed and it's a it's a valid it's a valid criticism and i have to say a first-time director who i'd not heard of i would not have given them that much rope i gave nolan that much rope because he'd done inception because he's done interstellar because he'd done memento because he does things that kind of you know warp your mind and I, I trusted that there would be some payoff on this if you went with it. But I, I appreciate an audience, a film girl, like you say, some people just want to watch a movie. And so I totally understand why some people watch that and go, fucking hell, mate, I don't, have, I don't want to have to watch the film three times to get what's going on. Now, I didn't need three times to, to, to kind of get what was going on. Um, and I, I think the first time you watched the film, the sound was shit. And, that, and I can totally understand why that would um, make it really difficult to follow this film. And I think Nolan's going to have to think about that in future. I mean, I, I got what was going on, but then with each rewatching, that I can see that, that that's more in it, and I, I I thought it was absolutely tremendous. I, I understand your your criticism about um, uh, Elizabeth Debicki and and her, her you know talking about her son. I I felt I went with it because I felt that what that was saying was, um, there is a personal stake in this. the The world that's being saved is not just a bunch of people. It's it's you know it's it, you know it's not just this huge mass of humanity. It's people with lives and loved ones and people that they don't want to lose. And, you know, if, if there's a crisis and if things all get blown up, you want to protect your family. And she is the, or she represents, and she is the, the you know, the, the people with loved ones who have lives that shouldn't be destroyed by this, this mad plan. And the protagonist has dragged her into it. I'll go into, into a second, you know, why he's dragged her into it. And he, he realizes that, the world is full of people like her who've got lives and loved ones who, who who don't deserve to be wiped out. And that's who he's fighting for. And the protagonist see who he's fighting for. And the fact that he puts himself in harm's way to to preserve that is because that's that's who you're fighting for. The message of the film is the people in the future have looked back on what we've done to this planet and, and maybe they've got a point. Maybe they've got a point that we fucked this up so much that the only thing that can happen is to to invert time and start again. And, and maybe maybe there'll be some planet left and something for someone left to live on. Um, but like uh, John David Orson says in the film, each generation is responsible for its own survival, and he wants to save all these people. It matters to him that these people that he sees and cares about, like Kat and Neil, they just, they deserve a world to live in. And I felt I felt that gave the film an emotional punch. Now a lot of people felt that it didn't have an emotional punch, but at the end of the film, there's this beautiful scene where, because Kenneth Branagh, who's who's you know married to Kat and has kind of been mistreating her and separating her from her son, he's been keeping her away. He's been telling his He's been telling their son that she's too busy to spend time with him, and she won't hold. He won't hold her hand, and he's he's fucking ruined her relationship with her son because he's such a fucking sociopath. And at the end, 
because she hung in there, because she did all the things that she did to fucking stay in his life and to you know, keep things going and to protect him, at the end, she just reaches out and holds his hand. And it's like that personal struggle is is what the protagonist is holding the line for. He's holding the line so people can fight their battles. Warning. Spoilers. <laughs> From this point on, there will be a full discussion of the film Tenet, including spoilers about all sorts of things that happen in the story and how it ends, who lives and who dies. So if you haven't seen Tenet and you want to do that before you listen to this discussion, this discussion is very much intended for people who've already seen the film, and I wouldn't want to damage your enjoyment of any film by giving you spoilers before you're ready to hear them. Um, that's your warning. Um, from now on, we're discussing Tenet. Now, the context of this discussion is that Tenet came out last year in the middle of a whole range of other things. I went to see it at the cinema, and I gave it my review uh, uh, for the podcast uh, on the episode that came out that month. Um, it was probably the biggest single uh, cinema release in, in a COVID-hit year that had so many big, big films postponed. It was the latest Christopher Nolan, which is always a big talking point. And like some of um, Christopher Nolan's most recent films, the audience tends up to be, the audience tends to be divided into into camps of people who who love the film and people who didn't. Um, there are people who absolutely loved Interstellar, like me. I think you as well, James. Um, yeah. And then there are people who are going, "Oh, this is you know, this is uh, this is silly. Nolan's gone off the boil here. This this is a, a very poor example. We should get back to what he's good at." Uh, and then Dunkirk came out, and not the same. It was actually different. I think people fall on different sides by different films. But Dunkirk was was another one where uh, there were some people going, "Oh yeah, return to form from Nolan. This is brilliant. Dunkirk is great." And other people like me and you, James, who, who didn't like it very much. So he certainly he seems to be in a, in a phase of his career where his um, his films divide with the audiences a bit more than they used to, and he seems to be. Um, reaching for something different from what he was 10 or 15 years ago, which means that not everyone he makes the film is going to love it. And that's what happened with Tenet, is that this time, whereas previously I think we tend to have the same opinion about all, all Nolan films, this time we've kind of come down on opposite sides in this. I loved Tenet, but you really didn't like it at all, did you? Uh, no, it was shit. Discussion over. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs> it was just fucking... It was, I cannot believe a film that fucking boring and that fucking bland was 250 odd million because it was shit it was it was it was incoherent and i i don't mind a film being challenging to kind of keep track of you know he's done that with um inception and interstellar spring to mind immediately some people might say that the prestige is a little harder to follow memento is definitely quite hard to follow but those films are universal not universally loved but the majority of people enjoyed those films not wow that's a you know it's a good film with a kind of challenging kind of concept and you know mind-bending kind of physics i mean i didn't find inception or interstellar too difficult to follow memento is definitely a bit of a okay holy shit i need to i need to lie down or i need to properly think about this film but tenet was just kind of it was just kind of rubbish it was that it was so poorly written it was so fucking poorly written the bit the bit that sticks out to me where i thought yeah no fuck this was the um it was the bit with the it's like, yeah, we need to save the world because this guy's uh, he's dying from terminal cancer and he's basically taking the world with him through time inversion. And I was like, cool, cool motive. Kenneth Branagh, cool, cool kind of, you know, low-key kind of scary Russian villain. Cool, on board. I was like, we need to save the world. And what's her name? Elizabeth Devicki goes, 
and my son. It's like shut, shut up. What the fuck? Uh, yeah, that's the most important thing that we need to we need to take from this. It's not the inter- end of the fucking world, but your son. Shut you, fucking sausage. What a terrible, terrible line. And at, at that point in the film, I was like, yeah, no. That what whatever happens now is redundant. There were some cool shots. There were some really cool shots, like the ab sailing and the reverse fights or the inverted fights and the the card. Uh, the car bit in um, Estonia, which they've obviously filmed there to save a bit of money because no one goes to Estonia, even Estonians. Um, but it was just fucking, it was just messy and it was just kind of like, you know, let's just take a re like Interstellar's idea was that the earth is dying. We need to travel through wormholes and, um, you know, things like time dilation and things like that. They were concepts that seem mental and act, but are actually, you know, true and it was kind of like it wasn't too bizarre or far-fetched was time aversion just it just wasn't it doesn't it didn't grip me it was like oh okay cool you know bullets can travel back into the gun and they do more damage because you're going this way and your lungs can only breathe oxygen that's going forwards instead of backwards and it was just like oh do me a fucking favor it was it just okay it just felt i just i don't know i felt like his heart wasn't properly in this one it, and as much as he got plaudits for Dunkirk, I felt like his heart wasn't properly in that one either, but there was more of a soul to that film because it was such a iconic moment in British and world history that there was a bit more soul to it. I just felt that like this film didn't have a soul. And I felt really bad for folk like Robert Pattinson and, uh, what's his name? John David Washington. Um, is that his name? Yeah. Yeah. Um, because they're, they're, they're giving it as their own. They're playing, they're playing cool characters and they're playing interesting characters, but, Oh, yeah just couldn't i couldn't be fucked with it it was it wasn't it wasn't a concept that was particularly interesting to me um i think he's done enough of time as a concept especially with um memento interstellar and i suppose uh you can say in- inception falls into the category of time because of the difference in timings because of the the dream sequences and the stages of dreams but this was just it was just it was just shit it wasn't it wasn't anything that I would write home about. And it was a real shame because it, after Dunkirk, I thought, okay, he's doing a sci-fi film and it's going to be about, you know, how time can, you know, be inverted and it's about that kind of stuff. And there's going to be a potential for some really cool shots, which there are, there's some really cool shots in it, especially, you know, with the, the waves going against the boats and the building blowing up and then re-blowing up and going back together or whatever, that, that shot in the kind of final moment of the film. But it was just kind of messy and, the problem I have with Christopher Nolan film and diehard Christopher Nolan fans is that if you find it too convoluted and too messy, you're basically written off as a fucking imbecile and you should, you shouldn't think about things too much. And that's my one, one of my couple of gripes I have with Interstellar is that the, the ending to Interstellar is a little bit messy and it's kind of like, okay, so them from the future have planted this, uh, this space in the black hole and you're going to basically use Morse code through gravity across time to communicate to your, daughter and you're like wait okay hang on that's a bit fucking mental do we even know if this is potential thing you know you're just it seems like the entire the entire film of interstellar is look you've traveled through a wormhole potentially possible and now you're in another part of the universe and you've gone to different planets that can maybe sustain life cool and then and then after that it's oh yeah then there's this mental bit at the end and if you don't understand you're a fucking imbecile and just deal with it you maybe shouldn't have to think about it too much because you love 2001 a space odyssey so much and nobody understood that fucking film either so then you're basically just basically told, I'll put up with it if you don't understand it. And I didn't really understand a fucking thing that was going on with the time inversion. It wasn't explained very clearly. It was just like, oh, look, 
this bullet goes backwards or look this car's going backwards and i'm sure there's been a lot of you know thinking done with the the shooting and the recording of those shots and the you know how they formulate the cgi or the the practical stunts for it but it was they just it, it didn't seem like it was something that I, that was that was interesting like it was you know, if you've not made it as clear as you possibly can as a director even though it's a complicated idea and you're just be telling folk to either think about it or you're being lazy yourself because you're not explaining it clearly enough then you can go and fuck yourself because you've got to try and make sure that the audience not not everyone that watches christopher nolan films is kip thorne you know mental astrophysicist you know people that watch these films are just kind of general movie goers and if you're basically told oh well if you don't understand you don't understand then that's your fucking problem that's not mine then it, you're you're kind of it's like you're being lost in your own arrogance of how grand and how large the idea of your film is. That's the way I felt about Tenet. It was it wasn't thought it wasn't explained very clearly to me the the whole time inversion. I know that it's basically time can go backwards and at the same time simultaneously you walk into this big fucking tumble dryer and you come out the other side and you need an oxygen mask depending on what side of the the uh, the flow of time you're on. But other than that, it was. It was like, yeah, just kind of put up with the the bizarre idea of you need to go backwards in time to catch up with somebody. It was like, what? N- oh, eh? 